you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com Goals24. That's Chime.com Goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again. Lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. Today is February 11th, 2018. I'm Chris Harrington, joined by my North by Northeast by Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm okay, Mookie. I feel like maybe I need an IV because I wrestled a pretty intense match last night, and uh, I'm nursing myself back to health with uh, sparkling water and coffee this morning. So I had a, uh, a listener... Send me a note saying you had a hell of a match last night. Did you did you juice oh, you in the did. match? Is that what happened? And was it a organic yeah, juice, juice or was it a? Uh, I didn't bleed. I didn't bleed at all. Who's giving you this idea? I didn't know. You said you were health, health, getting back to health with IVs. So I began thinking uh, maybe you lost some some oh, no, precious no, no. bodily fluids. Oh no, not 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 quite like that. Like the 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 fluid IV, not the not like a. Not like a transfusion. I don't okay. need a transfusion. Don't worry about that. But, oh, good. But, like, have you ever seen, like, Sasha Banks will post and stuff like that? She'll post, like, um, after a, w- a week on the road, she'll post, like, an, an Instagram photo of her at some IV salon or something like that. Like, she's re- replenishing her fluids. I am so baffled by so many elements of that sentence there. <laughs> uh, so, number one, um, Instagram. Yeah. Don't use it. Don't enjoy it. Find it. Find it awful. Uh, I post on it every maybe six months. I just take some photograph that's already on my phone and put it on just just to see what will happen this week. It was a picture of a can of Pringles, some Canadian Easy Mac known as Kraft Dinner, and a uh, candy bar that they have called Wunderbar, which is kind of like Butterfingers and a Caramello in one. Uh, so I posted that on Instagram. And so that's, that's my height of uh, Instagram. Two... Uh, the fact that you follow what Sasha Banks posts on Instagram is a lot to me. And three, what the heck is an IV salon? Well, I don't know if that's what it's really called, but uh, yeah, the, the, this is a thing. Like I think you know, pe- people who have a little bit of money, they they do. I've heard they do this sometimes. Like I, I've heard about this um, a few years ago. I was in New York City, and, and uh, 
I was visiting my aunt who lives there, and she mentioned that, oh, yeah, like the uh, these young people today, you know, they're, they're going in, like they get, they get hung over or whatever, and then the next morning, you know, when they're hung over the next morning from partying, they, they go and they get IVs, so they, they get over the hangover faster. Wow. So no, I feel this like is, I have a wrestling hangover right now. So This is news to me. All right. Well, uh, listeners, if you are familiar with these things, if they exist, if they are especially in the Buffalo area or that you would like Brandon to be a spokesperson for yours, um, please reach out at WrestleNomics at gmail.com or at WrestleNomics on Twitter. The, the, the one social media I do use, Twitter. Twitter. Um, you use Facebook too. Very rarely, actually. I mean, if it wasn't for my improv, I would use Facebook very, very little. Um, I needed to keep up with everybody in the troupe, and I plug usually improv shows. 99% of the time, if I'm posting, it's about video games or improv. So, Actually, there's a, there's a photo on your Facebook right now of you holding a championship belt, isn't there? Yeah, well, my, my, uh, my co-owner of Jester's Comedy Improv is also a big wrestling fan. I mean, he came over for Royal Rumble and whatnot, and so he had dreamed of having a wrestling belt as part of our uh, – menagerie of show every week so for the last many many years here we've had a championship every week and then we bring the uh, belt and then whoever wins that game it's usually a 185 contest Um, it changes hands it It was change hands every week well you take a picture with whoever wins it and so yeah it usually changes hands every week and is there a title history being recorded? You know, so everyone asks. Record of this. Everyone asks that, but no, hasn't hasn't really been. We we keep records kind of through the um, photographs. So every week, usually, we'll use whoever won that week in in our promo picture, and most of the time, then we can kind of trace the history and say, oh, it was this week, this week, this week. I, you've got to leave a trail for the improv historians who will come after you and study this. Yeah, yeah. I would say um, the only thing that is more worked than professional wrestling is improv championships in so <laughs> there's a lot of shows i can tell you who's going to win the belt before we even go on stage let's put it that oh, way goodness it's that works huh oh it can be it can be i mean you gotta you gotta put up it, it's one of those deals where there's we do make game time decisions but as the host if say someone brings half the crowd or they have a work oh. party or something you're gonna work. You're gonna work to make sure that they're in the finals of the contest. Now, when you get to the end of the contest, you want to make sure that the winner is someone the audience is gonna cheer because, not just because yeah. the game is over, but because you know they actually liked it. And what we find is that the super, like depending on the structure, like there's one structure where we do a, a scene and scene replay over and over again, and we do it with one less person each time. So it starts with six people, then five, then four, then two, then one. You usually do a double elimination somewhere in there, and. What will happen is the charismatic person in the beginning, the audience grows tired of them by the third time. It's kind of King of the Ring syndrome, right? You know, they get bored by the third time they see them that night. Yeah, this is why Vince didn't like that for him. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I've learned a lot from pro wrestling here about booking booking this stuff. So usually then like the second or third most charismatic, charismatic person will kind of start taking off kind of a, as an underdog. You don't notice them at first and they start wow. getting sharper and sharper. So it's that sort of thing where you, you have to balance it. But there's sometimes you'll – So is that, is that the, the key? to improv just be the third or fourth most charismatic person in your group well you know we always say that the best improviser is the person everyone else wants to perform with and it's rarely going to be the person that was quote-unquote funniest that night it's usually the person that everyone else thought made them look good and the person who makes everyone else look good is rarely the the biggest star it's usually the person that's the best at supporting the other. So it's more like, you know, it's it's a lot like wrestling. It's like who does everyone want to work with versus who does everyone – who makes the most money or who is the most charismatic. That's why Ric Flair was NWA champion. Yeah. 
That's why Ryback should have been paid as much as everyone else. <laughs> well, it's it's why Brian Danielson was so popular with with people as they enjoyed working with him. They made him look. They they felt he made them look good, and he was he was enjoyable to work with, and the crowd cared. So it's it's all that stuff. But yeah, so last night I had a good show. I did have a lot of people there from work, so I think that helped. But um, it was it was last night. Oh, you're right. It was two nights ago. Two nights ago, I went yeah, to yeah, because you do it on Friday, right? I do usually perform on Friday nights. That is correct. Yep. So if you are in St. Paul, Minnesota, and you're in a time machine, you're coming in for the Super Bowl, please come out and see us. Yes. We did a, a marathon show on on Wednesday night. Got me all scared. Uh, we did. Just for Patreon. Three hours and 15 minutes. Yeah, we, we, we not only is it a show, it was a, a YouTube show. So we, we showed video, we showed slides, graphs, charts, tables, text. We showed our faces for a couple of minutes on either end. Yeah, and then... Um, if you are a patron, you can listen to the show because we uploaded just the audio feed. Or you can go to the patron.com slash Russellnomics and you'll see a YouTube link that will let you watch the whole show. And, uh, you know, you can also watch at a faster speed than normal. So you can watch at one and a quarter speed or one and a half speed. And that that saves a lot of time. That's what I did with the um, conference call to save myself a lot of times. So I listened at one and a half speed and turned on the uh, – the Seeking Alpha transcript, and that way I was able to follow kind of back and forth, and it's so much easier to follow if you know what they're going to say, and you're just kind of hear, trying to hear inflection. So it was a, it's a good time. But yeah, it's a great show we did. We did three-plus hours on just WWE financials, really. And even that, we missed a couple things, and we could have gone more in-depth. And so what we're going to do on today's show is we are going to talk WWE financials. I think there's too many casual listeners who expect us to cover it. And with the hindsight of a few more days, I have kind of a, a couple of adjusted takes on everything where I've thought a little bit more about some of the subjects we discussed. Uh, so I, we are going to start off with that. And it's going to be a fun show to talk about that. But uh, Brandon, you you spent the whole day covering it. Uh, you were an article for Fightful. You took a day off work. You listened to the call. How how are you feeling? Are you recovered from both your wrestling match and your your wrestling? Uh... I'm not recovered. I'm not recovered from anything right now. But I did spend. I don't know. By the time I I, I was counting the hours. By the time I uploaded the uh, the audio for you to post to patrons, it was I'd been on like hour fifteen or something like that of WWE financial coverage here for the uh, the end of the year, end of the quarter, Q4. Oh, it's so stressful too. I mean. Like I've done it before because you get up early and then you have to get the documents right before they're released at like 9 a.m. And there's a whole bunch of them. So then it's like, OK, I'm, I'm going through all these different documents. And then um, by the time you're done going through all these documents, updating your graphs and tweeting this out, tweeting that out, the conference call is about to start. So then you get on the conference call and uh, the couple times I've covered it for like, you know, um, figure four. It's like, OK, now I'm on the Twitter. Now I'm I'm typing and typing and typing. And, and you know, you're just constantly going and you're trying to keep up. And at times you're getting a little bit behind or you're just trying to say George is saying numbers now is often what I, I have to tweet or George is talking about financial terms and I can't keep up with him. Um, right. I mean, I, I don't expect to grasp every sentence that's uttered and I try not to even like relay things that I don't understand because if I don't understand it. Most people who are following me are probably not, not going to understand it or find it interesting. So, I don't, but yeah, I, I wake up, you know, like at least an hour before the documents drop at nine. That's about the time the documents drop every quarter and you look through them until 11. And, and I usually have gone through them enough. So there's like a half hour 
breath I can take yeah. before the conference call I, starts. I always have time to make a cup of coffee right before the conference call starts. But then after the conference call, it's kind of this downslide. So it's like, so what? And then you're like, okay, I got to write my article now. So then you start working on that article. And then mm-hmm. uh, for me, I've done, you know, a couple times I've done Wrestling Observer Live. So then, you know, you kind of have the build up to that where you, you kind of want to feed the guys some talking points to be like, here's the five things you're going to want to talk about. And knowing that they're also going to talk to Dave that day. And you want to be like, okay, here's my take that's not just the same thing that Dave, Dave is going to say. And it's not me just saying numbers, right? I got to have some analysis that says, hey, look at the OBITA percentage on blank or look at the growth in this region of the world or they announced this initiative. And like – You have to construct a narrative. Yeah, so you, you got to add something. It's got to be a little bit more than just these numbers. I'm reading it off a press conference. Uh, and then – that afternoon, another document drops, and sometimes it's the 10Q, which is the financial document. They release that in Q1, 2, and 3, and then at the end of the year, like today or like this week, they release the annual report. And yeah, they've been doing that all same day. It's just like afternoon. Yeah. The, the, in the last few quarters, it's I know in, in quarters past, like a year or so ago, it would be like the next day or maybe a day after that. But it's it's been they've been pretty consistent about dropping the 8k in the morning and then dropping the 10k or the 10q in the afternoon yeah and it's so then it's like okay let me go through this and the the thing about it is that document is in my opinion a lot more rigid than the press conference that is the 8k because the 8k is really a press release with some financials in it but it can have as much flowery language as they want the 10k and the 10q is much more okay you got to show the same numbers every quarter more details here's more details here's degrees of precision. Here's explanations. So if pay-per-view is up, they've got to throw a line in there that says, well, is that because of buys or the, the quantity or the number of paper? They have to explain things where on the 8K, yeah, they don't. Little, yeah, there's a lot of little news stories in those sentences of explanation. I don't know what you would call them, but those, those little sentences of explanation that they put in there in the is that the quarterly what, what's the 10q is that the quarterly report 10q is like quarterly financials yeah and they're required to file those when they're not filing the uh the the, the 10k i believe or they choose to i don't know the if 10. they're required or not i think they are required because they always do it i think an 8k is a, is a form is an sec form that you're supposed to use whenever you're doing a quarterly report or whether there's any significant I don't. I'm sure we could look at up. Was there any, any any significant action in your business? Like when Vince McMahon sold a bunch of stock, they had to issue a, a, an 8K, and they issue an 8K for every quarterly report. But then they follow that up with it with a, a 10Q, or if it's the end of the year, a 10K. An 8K is a broad form used to notify investors in United States public companies of specified events that may be important to shareholders or the US SEC. This is one of the most common types of forms. This, this is a hot topic to kick off WrestleNomics Radio with. But yeah. Well, it's, it's what we do. A 10Q is the quarterly report mandated by the U.S. Federal Securities and Exchange. And I'm guessing that the the um, eight, the 10K uh, must somehow supersede it where, yes, it says in, in information for the final quarters of a firm's fiscal years in the 10K. So there's only three 10Qs done a year. Right. So, but yeah, just and what I think is funny is that most people get the first documents. They don't always even read them all, but they at least know what happens. A lot of people listen to the conference call. Such a tiny percentage of people actually read the annual report or go to that 10Q and report on it because again, it's three or four at night, and if you're a wrestling clickbait website, you're done with your day of of generating those kind of news headlines because you're waiting for Vince McMahon to say something on the call that you can twist out of proportion. 
and somehow related to CM Punk. Um, and so it's like that that's dead. And so from a financial reporting, I always find that the it would be the best if I could just say, we're not going to do anything until tomorrow. I'll have a story for you then. But that's not realistic because the the fever pitch for financial coverage for WWE is the seven days around when they make an announcement. And specifically, uh, the annual one is really good because there's a ton of little things you can talk about, at least. Because they usually make some kind of we're going to change this or we're going to do this different or this is our outlook for next year. And when we're talking about things like the the annual report, this is a 98-page document. Their, their other most recent quarterly report is a 53-page document, and it's just loaded with a ton of stuff where, like, even if you're writing, you know, aggregated wrestling news articles for a website, I'm not sure if, 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 if that were me, if I would be able to just pick up suddenly and figure out how to navigate my way through this. No, and, and you also need to know what, what it <laughs> basically says. Basically, what I just laid out is an, is an argument why why we are such valuable assets to the wrestling media <laughs> industry. But well, just it helps to know what we're saying year over year, too. Because, for instance, there was a, a note in the annual report this year that mentioned net neutrality. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I've, I've never seen that WWE talked about net neutrality. Well, you know what? I went back. It's been in there for years. And I was like, wow, I am kind of shocked that – I, who is in the upper 5% of people that read WWE financials. Probably the upper 0.1%. Like, <laughs> I don't know that anybody's reading these things with it. I'm, I'm, like, obviously, there's analysts yeah. out there who are reading this, and, and it's their job to read this and, not, and, and advise whoever there, the There are, are certainly dozens of people out there who spend a lot of time on this. There's an entire financial staff at WWE that spends an enormous amount of time on this. So I, I, I'm in the top percentage. But I was like – But as far as like somebody outside who and, and somebody who comprehends – the wrestling industry, I don't know if there's anybody who's reading this and understanding as much as you. There's are. some, there's some, but not a lot. There's only a few of us, yeah. and and so I'm just shocked whenever I go through it. I'm like, wow, I miss this, I miss this, and so again, a lot of it helps to read year over year. You know, the year they went to the WWE Network and they talked about all their risks. That that w- itself, I wrote an article on that. I went to what culture? I said like the 13 risks facing WWE. And it's like it's a number, you know, and it was nice because it was like, hey, I can just go through this and talk about it. And it's funny to see which of those risks are still big deals to them and which of those risks are um, completely off the face of the earth. Because a risk like the loss of Vince McMahon's services remains one of the biggest risks that they call out in every single filing. And that's why the whole issue of Vince McMahon is going to go work for the XFL, I think, is a big, big deal. Yeah. So, well. I mean, if if he, I don't know if you want to get into that now. I know we have a question from Keith about that, but like, um, I forgot what I was going to say. If uh, if Vince leaves soon, he'll. It's not going to be like an abrupt. I'm quitting WWE. I'm going to go do XFL. It's going to be. It's it's less of a risk, or it's a more comfortable transition because if if he's able to, you know delegate things gradually but that's that was coming out of the press conference going into the press conference we had zero visibility of whether vince mcmahon was starting this league and leaving next month next quarter uh, when he next did, year when he did the xfl when he did the xfl conference he was asking he, he, said, he no. said that's when he told us that's my point is leading into that we did not know what the timing yeah. would be so, but i'm not the quarterly call but the the that yes. press conference yeah, yeah. on what was it january 25th okay. so my point being he sold a bunch of stock, did a bunch of actions that made us think, hey, he's registering XFL trademarks. He's doing something. And then he's clearly involved. And then we don't know what the, the role is. 
and the fact that the company calls out in every single one of their filings, hey, this guy's really important to us. This guy's really important to us. I thought, wow, you're putting yourself at a huge risk. And so the fact that the stock did not collapse when he sold a bunch of stock, I, I always go back to saying, wow, that was really surprising because they were able to keep people's expectations normal. And in the end, he did something that was very reasonable. He said, I have a two-year plan to move into a position where I'm working on this. And no, it's not going to affect me now. And so that was the preamble coming into this meeting where we're like, is it going to be all XFS XFL calls? Is it going to be all about Ronda Rousey? Is it going to be all about um, made up financial measures? So they they announced like a flurry of things all at the end here. And that's not unusual to do at the year end to kind of say, here's what's going to be different next year. Here's what we're changing. But there was uh, a couple announcements. And I'm just going to jump ahead to then number two and number three then. And then we'll go to actually number one, which was number one is the actual financial results. But let's talk number two since we're on the topic of number two. Number two is Michelle Wilson and George Berrios have been promoted to co-presidents of the WWE and they're joining the board of directors. They will continue to report directly to McMahon and um, they they were basically uh, given recognition of their contributions of four years of record revenues and the successful transformation to a multi-platform business model. Mm. And uh, that, a lot of words, but I mean, well, and, and, they worked hard. Yeah, and, and as I said in our, in our patron-only audio, like, okay, what does any of this mean? Like, they have different titles, but doesn't indicate that anything's going to change about their duties and uh and, and as our friend keith harris he, he asked us this question he said do you, do you think george and michelle's promotion to co-presidents is linked to vince spending more time on his outside business ventures i.e the xfl i imagine they will have to pick up some of vince's w duties this year so i'll, I'll so. give you the the feedback i heard from somebody who's talked to someone in wwe who works works there so this is hearsay but um, I, I believe it, which was basically they're grateful for this change because essentially it elevates them to a position where they can make decisions that can be executed against without the Vince McMahon delay and change that has become challenging for so many people. And what I mean by that is Vince will works at weird hours. He changes his mind a lot and he stays up late. So sometimes people weren't able to get the sign off on things that they wanted to get until very late to the last minute is my impression. And so this will at least put it back into a structure where it's people who are in the office and working normal business hours and working like normal business people should in responding to employees. I think Vince – Like are you, are you suggesting that this is the promotion of Michelle Wilson and George Berrios to the title of co-presidents? Does that give them some sort of approval power that they did not have until – Disappointment. I think so. I think it's it's the idea to say that that they can approve decisions and that there won't be as much um, kind of Vince has the final say. Vince can axe this or Vince, you know, it's it's more to say George signed off. He's a co-president of the WWE. Let's go ahead. And the idea is where, where Vince would still have oversight, he could overrule somebody, but they can go ahead. Yeah, you got George or Michelle's approval. Okay. Yeah, and and the idea that a lot of times they would need a decision and they weren't able to get it from Vince, and possibly even you know George or Michelle would say, "Yeah, we're going to do this," but they'd say, "Well, we need to hear from Vince because you know he's going to come back at blank." So I, I think in that sense. But we have to wait until he's done with his 3 a.m. workout. So I think it's a bigger deal because I think it's about putting the structure of a business leader who's not going to television a couple times a week and is not traveling and is not 72 and, you know, all over the place. 
in terms of, of mm-hmm. stuff. So do I think this is affecting the wrestling product itself? Probably not. I'm talking more the business decisions about, you know, what's our marketing scheme going like? What's our messaging like? What's our, you know, what, 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 what different language we might be using in a program or, or can this deal go ahead? And um, so I, I think it's a big deal for them. I think uh, we've said a lot. You know, there was that Seeking Alpha article earlier this year. WWE needs to lay out a secession plan. Well, you know, they have two co-presidents now that don't have the last name McMahon. And I think that is a big deal because that's trying to say, look, we can elevate leaders in this company who are not members of the family, but rather are business executives who have been delivering on things. This company went from 507 million, 508 million 2013, 543, 2014, 669, 2015, 729, 2016, and now 801 in terms of millions of dollars of revenue. So when they kind of talk about the big four years, that's the difference here. Is they went from a business that was less than 500 million in 2012 to more than 800 million in 2017. And a lot of that has not necessarily come with a profitability jump because it has been going to a much lower profit business, but it's been growing the revenue, the top line stuff, because they've gone so much to a network model where they have a, 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 an average number of subscribers that is very steady throughout the year. And this is the vision that George and my, Michelle have been very involved with since the start of this. And George talks about it left and right. And so failure or success, I've been impressed that they haven't been on the board of directors this time. And I think I even ranted about it, I think, a couple weeks ago saying I thought it was weird that they were on, they were not on and Stephanie and Triple H were when from a involvement and experience standpoint you're getting a lot more business savvy from those two than you probably are from George and Stephanie I mean yeah, and Paul and I, Stephanie. I feel like just just in the time that I've been following this which is about since the W network launch in 2014 like my feeling is that Vince on the business side has become increasingly uh, deferent to Barrios and now Michelle Wilson. I guess that's that's the vibe I get from the I, conference calls. We, we, I would ch- challenge the one thing, which is there's these little hints of where Vince sticks his thumb on the weight. And you can feel it occasionally when George will talk about it because he'll say the things like they'll very much – whether it's smart or dumb, a lot of times they'll say decision to go to social, that was all George. Or that was all Vince. Vince was the one that told us that we need to do that. The decision to rip up the, um, the, the contract for the TV station that was offering them money for a WWE network on a normal MVOD platform, that was Vince. He ripped it up. He didn't want to do that. And so – there's a lot of that where they, they kind of talk about, you know, Vince making this or pushing this direction here. I think Michelle and George. I don't know, do, do you think that's 100 percent the the real story or as we've heard from stories from writers and things like that or even wrestlers that the the way to work Vince is to make him to, to convince him to do your ideas, to make him believe that it's his idea. I think there is an element of Vince McMahon buying into ideas and whether they're his idea or your idea, he still has to buy into the idea. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes, yeah, you do have to resell him on things and he doesn't have a great memory for sure. I I, I do think I do think, though, that it's simple to just kind of pretend like they're the engine of why they're successful. I think Vince has been very involved in a lot of this decision making and stands behind it. I don't think Vince is a great speaker to investments. And ever since the shareholder lawsuit, they've been really reluctant because Vince's bravado and braggart can be misinterpreted in the context of the way most investors talk. So people have said before, Vince is brutally honest as a promoter when something fails. 
And the stock market is so used to these CEOs that are lie, <laughs> you know, that now they think, oh, my God, what is what is really wrong? If he's saying it's bad, it's got to be horrible. And it's like, oh, no, that's not what was meant to happen. And so I think some of it was they just a recognition that you need to get an investment guy to talk to investors and analysts. And George is that guy. And you need to get a a a woman in a high position to talk about why wrestling is not just men in spandex beating each other up and, you know, why marketing message had to change. And Michelle played a big role in that. And like we said, you saw Michelle at the Royal Rumble. Yeah. Stephanie as well, partnering with Michelle. But I think I think at times I, I think Michelle has done a lot to move ahead here. And I think Stephanie has gotten to be the face of it because she's a McMahon, uh, to be really honest. I think there's I think she Stephanie has contributed a lot. And I think Michelle's contributed a lot. And I think sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and like Michelle has the, has the real business background and George has the, the you yeah. know, the non wrestling business. background. And that's the only thing that makes me nervous is that you're like, wow. Can someone who is kind of ignorant about some of wrestling be in such a high position and be successful? But you know what? Linda McMahon, for all her faults or, or successes, she was pretty ignorant about the day-to-day stuff happening in wrestling uh, when she was president. I mean you can go back to the conference call where someone asks her about crime time in the middle of a call about a tag team thing. And she basically admits that she doesn't really watch it every week. And not so hot on all the day-to-day storyline stuff because she was a people person, you know, managing other elements of the business. And I could definitely see George and Michelle there. I do think for credibility, I do feel like George might still have to, to ratchet it up one more notch in terms of, you know, he, he seems a lot like a guy who kind of likes other sports and works for wrestling and is always kind of half apologizing for working for wrestling and instead has gone into this it's a story mode versus just being like it's wrestling it's professional wrestling it's successful it's lasted generations and it's it crosses all borders yeah i i, f- I feel like a george barrios apologist which we may get into later that i feel like his he's come a long way from a couple of years ago when we heard him saying sean rollins i feel like his understanding of the industry sounds something that is more familiar to to me and to my understanding of the wrestling industry when i hear him talk lately in the last year or so um and i think there's and i think that's fine and i think there's a big division in a a, any given wrestling business and there's like the creative side that uh triple h lives in and vince mcmahon micromanages but then there's also the business side where you like okay create the you know the creative side creates this great creative product hopefully and then you have the business side that just where you're telling the business side, hey, okay, monetize this great product for me. And I think that's the Barrios and Wilson role, and it's someone else's role to create great creative. Yeah, and and such a a huge percentage of that has very little to do with the week to week stuff. When you look at some of the business changes that they made to this, in terms of you know what licensing deal do we pursue, and what joint ventures do we pursue, and what platform do we use to launch our products? I mean. That's very different than who do we push and, you know, what talent do we recruit? And so 
that I think that it, it's really a much bigger business. And when you look at it, you know, adding three hundred million dollars to the bottom line in four years here. And keep in mind, this was a business that in 2008 was worth 526, 2009 went to 475, 2010 was 477, 2011 was 483, and 2012 was 44. And so it, it – That's millions of dollars yeah, in revenue. Yeah, so it went to 526 and then it dropped and it spent about four years there moving at less than 1% of revenue change. And that was, I think, frustrating for WWE and you started to see a lot of turnover of some of the top executives. Now, profitability-wise, they were actually – profitable. They were growing in different ways at the time, but I think they kind of made it a strategic move to say what will play bigger on Wall Street and a lot of it was we want to be, you know, next generation direct to consumer, digital, social storytelling and revenue growth. Philanthropy, women's revolution. So, it, it, they they made those big decisions and so I think it's really interesting. I would still say Ninety-nine percent of wrestling fans have no idea who George Berrios and Michelle Wilson are. And if I were to read all the names of the people on the board of directors over the last twenty years here, ninety-nine percent of the people would never know who some of these most very important people were. So that's that's not an indictment of wrestling fans as much as it's just to say, you know, no. business is changing, and uh, these are two people I would keep an eye out for. But yet at the same time, I've seen stocks go this high and disappear off the face of the earth very quickly. I mean, there's been people who've been with the company for 20 years, and then they'll just be gone. And we've seen uh, marketing people go onto the board of directors before and then be gone. Uh, I'm pretty sure Donna Goldsmith uh, got herself all the way to the uh, board of directors once, and she was the uh, is is, uh, is she the one who got the hair? Yeah, she was the one who got the hair. Yeah, she she uh, she was the COO. She was a senior vice president of consumer products. And I think she at one point um, – yeah, I think she at one point was, might have even been on the uh, 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 board of directors. But yeah, she – For those who don't know, at, at, after WrestleMania 23 in 2007 when Vince McMahon got his head shaved and the, and the hair versus hair match with Donald Trump, uh, S- Stephanie sent her an envelope with a snippet of Vince McMahon's hair, right? Yeah. Am I getting all that right? That is- Speaking of hair – one of our important sponsors here on Russellomics Radio is Keeps because, you know what, hair loss is not just your dad's problem. It happens earlier in life than you think. By 35, two out of three men will start losing their hair. But hair loss is actually easy to prevent if you get started early. And that's why there's a new company. It's called Keeps, K-E-E-P-S. It's offering a simple, clinically proven, affordable way to stop hair loss. With Keeps, it's easier than ever for guys just like us to keep our hair. And, and when I look in the mirror, when I come out of the shower, when I come off a big wrestling match, I pull my head down and I look at oh my god, my, my balding in the back, in the front. I don't know. I think I think I might be Chris. And, and what, what what can I do about it if I? Well, the good news is Keeps is the easiest way to keep your hair because all you have to do is you answer a few questions, you take some photos, and a licensed doctor will remotely review your information. They look at the photos that you snap on your phone, and they'll give you the right prescription all without ever having to leave your couch. So within two or three days, you'll have a three-month supply of your treatment, and it will arrive in a perfect package at your door. It is selling the only two FDA-approved hair loss products, and they're clinically proven to keep the hair that you have. It takes less than five minutes to sign up, and it's entirely online. It can cost anywhere from ten to thirty-five dollars a month, but that's like a dollar a day on average, and that's less than half. That's less than half than you'll probably pay at a pharmacy. Yeah, I've seen those prices in the pharmacy, and they're pretty high. But with Keeps, if you go to Keeps.com, Keeps.com/slash W E, and you can get a free month 
a free month to just try it and see how you like it. Stop hair loss today with the easy way using Keeps. It's offering a customized treatment plans with the only FDA-approved hair loss products, and it's only about a dollar a day from the comfort of your couch. To get your first month free, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash W-E. That's a free month of treatment at Keeps.com slash W-E. Keeps. Hair today. Hair tomorrow. So as we go through our document here, which has just a load of numbers, tables, graphs, article links, and so on and so forth, if you want to impress all your wrestling fan friends by showing them just how informed you are about the professional wrestling business, then I would highly recommend considering becoming a patron for WrestleNomics, which you can do for $5 a month, just $5 a month, and you get access to our notes and our bonus audio that we are recording on a weekly basis at the moment. And, uh, and in this document, we've got a number of stats about WWE's financial reports from 2017. We're talking about revenue, OEBDA, operating income, and net income. Yeah, so let, let's we should if we're gonna <laughs> if we're gonna actually talk about WWE results, we should make sure we put them in context. So number one, revenue is one hundred and one million dollars, eight hundred and one million dollars. This was significant. This was higher than I think what most people thought. I think most people thought they'd be seven ninety five or seven ninety three. Uh, they wanted I think to get over eight hundred, and they did. Um, compare that to twenty fifteen. They were at six fifty eight point eight. 2016, they're at 729.2. So they had a 9.8% growth to get to that 801. So that was a good number for them. Uh, OBDA, OIBDA, uh, which is operating income before depreciation and amortization, was at $101.6 million. That was a 26.8% growth over 2016's number, which was only 80.1. And it's a, a almost a $20 million growth but that year. It was even from higher. The, yeah, 61.6 was 2015. So OEBDA was important because that was one of the numbers they were really like promising for the year was that they were going to get over $100 million on OEBDA. And then adjusted OEBDA was something like, what, 112 or 111? Should we just start calling and that, that was like, w- uh, CTE adjusted OEBDA or something like that? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Because it's a, a lot uh, of those expenses are legal expenses, including expenses that are related to, to their defense of the CTE lawsuit. Correct. That was part of it, yeah, yeah. The film, I would say, it's it's uh, the Marines, it's not just CTE legal expenses, not just the CTE yeah, legal film, expenses, but quite a few other expenses. Film impairments is a big one. Um, some of the stock compensation stuff has been a big kind of trigger for them this year, which led them to make some changes. And then uh, sometimes it's building stuff, so you know, capex planning. So they're spending money on you know uh, buildings and retrofitting them for production facility and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's all those things. Operating income was seventy five point six million dollars. That's up thirty five point seven percent from last year, which was fifty five seven. The year before that was thirty eight eight. And net income was sixty four million, sixty four point one million. That's up twenty two and a half percent from last year's fifty two point three million, which is up from the year before's thirty six point two. So it was a good financial end for them. Uh, the stock was, I, I would say, mostly rewarded. Uh, in spite of the fact that it it was kind of a, a tough week for Wall Street here, um, they've had a pretty good uh, time recently. One thing that you know I just wanted to kind of focus in on was the three big areas for this company. So the three big areas for this company are TV rights, WWE Network, live events. Before so, you go there, can can I ask how, a question about net income? <laughs> must you, uh, if you don't mind, like. Okay. So I know Dave likes to focus on net income instead of OEBDA for whatever reason. And uh, 
I guess like the the, the point I, I think he would make. I haven't read the Observer yet, but you know, W. Touts this says they're they're biggest a weeb the quarter or biggest a weeb a year ever, right? But if you look at net income, uh, the net income for 2017 was about 33 million, but net income in years like 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010 were all higher in the 40s and 50s. So is what, is that significant? Like, is is should we? Is it wrong to say that 2017 was the most profitable year in WWE history? That that would that be incorrect to say? I would say it'd probably be incorrect to say because the the measure of profitability um, that they're using allows them to cherry pick certain expenses and allows them to only look at a proportion of of everything. So I think net income, income a more you know, is going to be. Well, I think net income is going to be a, a gap-approved measure. So, for that reason alone, I would say it's more and, and, and you know Oibda, consistent. It's not a gap-approved measure, but is, is a weebda a gap? No, no, it's no, not. Not really. Okay. Not really. No, I don't believe so. Uh, that, which is why you'll see it being EBITDA, eb- yeah. EBITDA in other years, and you'll see even the word profit just be the word profit they used for a couple years there too. Profit contribution. Sometimes they just said uh, net cost. So they would do revenue, net cost, and then the difference between the two is what they called profit contribution. So some years they gave us profit contribution. Some years they gave us net net cost. Some years they gave us EBITDA. Some years they gave us OBITDA. Some years they gave us adjusted OBITDA. So you can see why in order to compare them year over year, people are going to gravitate towards other measures that are going to be a, a reported the same. And have gap approved behind it. And I'm sure Dave talked to some finance person who said the number you should look at, Dave, is net income. And, you know, I think the accountants out there would be well, well served sending us an email explaining why net income is a great way to look at profit or not a great way to look at profit. Because I think it's economics at gmail.com. Yeah. So I'm not going to pretend to be able to answer this question beyond saying you are absolutely right that they had a higher net income between 2006 and 2010. When you start looking at 2011, 2012, and 2013, they started spending a lot on the network. And if you go look at their results, they they admit to that, that they're already spending money on the network. And so that's one reason they're a little bit artificially lower than they should be. If you also remember my earlier statement about kind of the the fallow years of WWE between 2008 and 2012, where they stayed at that same revenue every year, well, they were about a $50 million revenue company on on net income and about a $500 million revenue company on revenue. And they were – like I say, their their net income wasn't great compared to I think some other companies that they might compare themselves to. But was a heck of a lot better than when they started the network. And that was always kind of the argument to say you're replacing a pay-per-view stream, which was giving you a 50% margin, with a network stream, which was giving you a 20 to 25% margin. That network stream is now going up in terms of the value a little bit. But it's it's still, even today, sits at uh, weaved up percentage uh, is twenty is thirty two point four percent? Year ago it was only twenty four percent. So I mean, it's it's varied all over the place. In twenty fourteen, it was so bad it was negative for the year. And and you're you're very right to say, hey, they want to get more. And their theory is, hey, we're going to keep growing every year by you know so many millions of uh, for Oibda, and eventually their net income is going to be higher than it was in the pre um, network period. So. 
I, I think it might have a lot to do with how they're being compared to other companies that they want to adjust themselves, how they're spending on different media that they want to adjust themselves. And, you know, for them, they, they have uh, certain streams that are going to be growing year over year over year. And that's really, really important to them because they know they can leverage those streams. And that's part of what is transforming their business here is that, you know, essentially, like you said, they've they've added three hundred million dollars of revenue. And at the same time, they've added about three hundred and twenty million dollars of net income cost. You know, cost, really, I, I'm, I'm butchering some of these accounting terms here, but, um, you know, looking at just total revenue for the for the year. Uh, TV rights are about 34% of their total revenue. WWE Network is about 25% of their total revenue. Live events is about 19%. And then there's another category called other. And that's almost 23% of their entire business. And that sounds big, but that other piece is lots of small things. That's home video. That's licensing. That's WWE Shop. That's virtue venue merchandise. That's WWE Studios. It's so many little things. Not any one of them as big as TV rights, WWE Network, or live events. So just to kind of put in perspective, how much is that changing? What's really interesting to me is that TV rights is actually a smaller proportion of share of their total revenue than it was two years ago. 2015 TV rights were 35% of their entire revenue. Now it's only 33.7. So it's basically flat. Yeah, but I would have thought with TV rights growing faster than network subs, we would actually see that get bigger. And so it's kind of intriguing to me to see that network is sitting right at that 24.2, 24.8, 24.7. It's sitting right at that 25% mark. And that live events, it's 19%, it's 20%, it's 19%. It's just kind of intriguing to me where we talk so much about revenue growing so much for WWE year over year and how TV rights are fueling that revenue gain. But what's interesting is I would have thought as a proportion of total revenue share, it would it would disproportionately be taking more and more share yeah. each year. Yeah. And it's not. So that was intriguing to me. But this next um, – this next I – mean, Sales cycle will be a step change is is also what I would take from a lot. That. So we're looking at the years of 2015, 16, and 17, and and a lot of and these these yeah. are the, the years that the W Network has been coming to maturity, right? So a lot of the, a lot of that yeah. revenue is is from the W Network, and and as we know, the W Network is a is a much higher revenue business than pay per view, but uh, a lower profit margin, right? Because you're not it's, just splitting a big fee with a pay-per-view carrier. You're having to deliver the service. Well, I mean, customers. we can see it. We can see it here. So the OBITA percentage by segment. So if I just take their OBITA, which is what they like to think of as profit, and divide it by revenue, because they don't give us net income by area. I don't no, believe. I don't think they in do. the document. Um. So, uh, when when you look at that, TV rights uh went from a forty-two percent margin to a 48.4% to a 51.6. So you can see the escalation of fees there because essentially people are paying more every year for a similar amount of content and you're so you're it's becoming more and more valuable. Even when you factor in some of the additional content that is being produced. WWE Network is a 30.4 percent business margin business 24 percent margin business and a 32.4 so what you see there and we'll get into this when we do mookie's divisional scorecard why is ww network a higher obita percentage this year because they cut costs that's the easiest way to put it is they cut costs and they grew their network sub number over last year you spending less in money. ring content shocking 
Yeah. Live events was a 30.5% margin business in 2015, is a 28.9% margin business in 2016, is a 27.9% margin business in 2017. So two things to take away. Number one, TV rights, twice as profitable as network roughly. Twice as profitable as live events roughly. Network more profitable than live events for the first year, really. They, they were kind of tied in 2015. 2016, live events were much more profitable. 2017, they're less profitable. So that was really intriguing to me, especially on the guise of they're running so many more live events now. So essentially, it's a volume model. It's not a profit model, right? Because at that point, you're trying to squeeze out the penny profit. And then that remaining, which is just everybody else there, the licensing, the home entertainment, everybody else, they've gone from a 36% margin business to a 34% margin business to a 32% margin business. And so one thing you'll see with that is that um, that's the business that's growing the slowest. That's the business that is seeing a lot of cost increases and or other or depletion of revenue. You know, put it however you want. If it's got a fixed cost structure and the revenue goes down, that's going to hurt them more or the per unit cost is going up depending on what they're doing. So overall, this business, though, <laughs> what I'm leaving out of all of this is corporate and other. Corporate and other is this gigantic number. I think it was negative $201 million this year on um, OBDA, which is really a way of saying that's all the unallocated costs for this business for the year, all the headcount, all the legal fees, all the performance center in, in Florida, all the everything. costs they deem so, to be beneficial to every segment. Or to yeah, many yeah, segments, multi-segment. Yeah. And especially around people or resources that are not easily allocable to one service. So, you know, a, a WWE.com or WWE shop sale, that's really clear where that goes. The marketing, you know, uh, George Barrios is PA. <laughs> well, he's working on all these lines. Finance, the finance department. Well, they work on everything, right? So, uh those those things are not going to count towards one single line. So the total OBITA percentage for WWE was 9.4% in 2015, 11% in 2016, and 12.7% in 2017. So if you remember, all the numbers I've quoted here have been in the 30s, the 20s, and the 50s, and yet their overall number is 12.7 for the year, which just speaks to how huge that last segment is, which is why they are changing how they're doing the accounting next year. They are actually going to start reallocating as much of those corporate and other costs as they can per segment. And um, the language they use is a little vague. I interpreted it as basically they say take the percentage of the revenue for the year and then we'll we'll allocate that percentage of cost. So when I say TV rights are 33.7% of the revenue for the year, we would expect 33.7% of the applicable costs will be reallocated to TV rights, regardless of whether they're really consuming 33.7% of the travel budget. That might be what they decide to do. So we'll have to see what that looks like because they're also trying to break out corporate and other. So it's not corporate and other, but rather two separate lines that are very clearly de delineated. But like when you talk about the data analytics team and they're trying to run you a promo to get you to sign up for the network – that might be hitting two or three different streams there in terms of what they think they're spending on. Because maybe that's digital media. Maybe that's, uh, uh, you know, customer engagement through the WWE network. Maybe it's something else. I don't even know. So it'll be very interesting to see how that changes uh, next year. Um, I think the other thing, let's see. Oh, yeah, I just pulled called out here um, what the OBITA percentages were for all the other little, you know, kind of um, – tiny businesses like home entertainment this year plummeted 
It was a 34% margin business in 2015, a 40% margin business in 2016, and a 19% margin business in 2017. It halved itself in profitability. Uh, Digital media, on the other hand, doubled its profitability. It went from a 17% last year to 30% this year. Licensing remains very profitable. It's actually the single most profitable segment in terms of per penny. It's um, about a 59% And I always took that because – And if you think about it – In the case of licensing, if you think about you're just charging somebody a fee to use your intellectual property, the cost to you is fairly low. Yes. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of costs in administering it. You know, I wouldn't even be surprised if a large part of the IP, you know, costs go towards licensing, you know, because you could argue, OK, that's the reason we're we're maintaining all of our things. Plus, we have all these deals. And then, you know, at times they, they do joint ventures and other things with people. A venue merchandise is about a 38 to 40 percent business. And WWE shop is only about a 20 percent business. So when they gain money, you know, a dollar is not a dollar. In WWE, cost, but the problem is, but the problem is with corporate and other being so big, it can be distorted when you try to say is a dollar a dollar. Because for instance, what they had to do a, uh, about two years ago was they they actually reallocated a whole bunch of costs that were going to TV, and they said this really should go to network because most of this programming or a portion of this programming is being shown on the WWE network. And previously, they were just putting it in with with uh, you know. And so, for instance, I'll give you an example. I don't know this is a real example, but I'll just give you a hypothetical. The pre-show for Raw. That's a network yeah. show, right? When they used to do it. I, I know they haven't done it for a couple of years. When they used to do it. Or... But that that would be the sort of thing that might in the old world have gone to the, gone to the television segment because they'd say, oh, it's part of SmackDown. But now they would say, no, that's really a network cost. We should allocate some of that cost to network. So – what what's tough is when you see accounting shifts like that, suddenly it can change the profitability of a certain segment. So it'll be very intriguing to me to see where we land. Do we with know all for this a fact because that that's how they I, I, allocated, say, a, a raw pre-show cost. I don't. We don't know that, do we? I don't know that exact example. They give some detail in the annual report, basically saying certain costs were cha- were decided that they didn't belong in television; they belonged in a network, and we've reallocated those. I think a show so like that. I'm just giving you. An- a clearly greater advantage to the network than it does to TV. It does, but I'm I, I'm saying it's a good example of one because it's at a live SmackDown taping or a live Raw taping, and that's why you'd think of it as part of the television right. taping cost because it, it's really easy to say swerved. Everybody knows that's not part of network or television cost, but something where it's a portion of a pay per view. Are you prorating that pay per view between a TV cost and a non TV cost? Or, or, or more example, Raw or SmackDown is a much better example of that. Um, something like Tough Enough or something like um, – W Main uh, Event, which they tape every week. That, that's only on the network in the US. Yeah, but it's on – it was on television internationally. So you know, you could you could make a strong argument there about wh- what are you doing with this stuff, Live, right? which they tape so, every week. So I think, I think basically they, they got told or they made the decision, hey, we're not fairly allocating it. And just because TV rights are highly profitable, that's not going to be a dumping ground for cost. Um, partially, too, because we also want to make TV rights seem super profitable. And if we sandbag it with certain things, it's going to hurt us. Now, in the end, like when I was saying they're going to cut costs, well, the way they phrased it this year um, around TV rights and whatnot was they WWE spent $15.9 million to produce non-live event TV programming for the TV and network in 2017 compared to $28 million in 2016. So, again, 
15.9 this year, 28 last year. And that would probably include everything from Camp WWE, Swerved, to Total Bellas, Total Divas, uh, Tough Enough if that was last year, uh, things like that. So, I mean, it, it's it's a lot because non-live is a very open segment about what they're, what it is. And sometimes they make programming like – and I don't even know if they know exactly what they're going to do with it, a, a.k.a. Legends House, right? Where it started in one segment, sat around on the books for a long time, and then when it finally aired, it was a network show. So That, that was taped in what, like They say they plan to spend between like – and then it finally aired in the network yeah. and they launched it in 2014. They say they spent they plan to spend between ten and thirty million dollars next year. So very large range, right? <laughs> they did sixteen this year, twenty-eight the year before, and they said they'll go between ten and thirty. So that doesn't really tell you much, except for they're gonna be judicious in that they're not spending fifty to sixty, and they're probably gonna still have to spend a lot of money on it. So that's a pretty big range for me, um, for what they said. But just to give an example of, you know, that's the kind of costs that are gonna be tough. And this new accounting I think it's really going to change a lot of things, and it's going to make it tough for us to compare today to five years ago. They're supposed to show us a couple back years, so at least last year will definitely be under the new scheme. 2016, I would also figure, will be under the new scheme, but I don't think we're going to have it going back to 2015 or earlier. They they really never do more than two years. Yeah, I'm going to – I want to pull up that slide from the uh, investor's call, which shows what the differences are. So there's one where they, they basically said, we're going to give you more granularity. And one of those pieces of granularity are we're going to now try to break out the difference between basically core programming like Ron Smackdown and kind of the ancillary programming like Total De- total Bellas, Total Divas, Miz and Mrs. Those are going to be really important because then you'll be able to see the live revenue, um, you know, the TV rights renewal on the core stuff versus the secondary stuff. Because in the past, the number of episodes airing in a single quarter – has greatly impacted whether or not a TV rights number might be up for the quarter or flat. And that, that I think, has kind of embarrassed them, where they've been trying to say, hey, our TV rights are always going up. By the way, we aired two less episodes of blank, and then that meant that, and, and you know, it makes them not look so good. It's much easier if you just break it out for us, where then instead of you giving us some footnote that is very convoluted, says if we had aired the same number of episodes, instead he says, you know how much we made for Ron Smackdown? We made $54 million. And a year ago, we made $49 million. So we made $5 million more this year, whatever. So starting next quarter, we're going to get an idea of what they get paid for Ron Smackdown worldwide. This is not going to be broken down by region, I don't think, but, but worldwide, right? I think so. I think for those so. playing along, you know, it's, it's page fifteen of the latest investor presentation on the corporate website. They also announced some other changes. Uh, they announced a new adjusted OBITDA measure, like you mentioned. Um, they announced that they're going to uh, establish. They're going to basically embrace a new rule, FASB, uh, which is the Financial Accounting Standards Board, um, made a ruling about how they're supposed to deal with royalties, and. It gets super technical, super boring. This is not one of those ones that is an easy one that anyone's going to care about. But what it basically means is that they're changing how they're going to um, record the revenue for uh, revenue from contracts with customers. Topic 606. The revised approach is expected to have a significant impact on the licensing and filmed entertainment businesses where it shifts the timing of revenue. The company anticipates changes in the quarterly timing of revenue, but does not expect a material change in the full year results. But they think it could have an estimate of 11 million to 13 million decline in licensing 
in Q1 of uh, 2018. What does this mean in plain English? Which will be – They're uh, recording the royalty payments later? Um, I think they're they're now recording an estimate on the royalty payments for that quarter rather than the uh, actuals. Let me let me check. There was a slide in the um, there's a slide in, slide in the deck Page in the key. Yeah, I don't have it in front of me. Um, and so it, it has a nice little chart where it says Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4, and it kind of says here's what we used to do, here's what we're going to do now. And uh, what does it say in terms of what, what the change is? It says in 2017, in Q1, they would give a statement of Q4 2017 royalties, but instead they're going to give an estimate of Q1 2018 yep. royalties. So so it looks like – Look at that. Chris Chris even did it right. So, so yeah, so instead of basically getting uh, – you know, it's like you just – basically the difference between guessing and getting a real bill. And so – here they used to estimate – I mean here they used to wait till they would get the real number and then they would cord that as revenue that quarter. Now they're going to estimate what they think they're going to get and they're going to record it in real time and then do adjustments as the year goes on. And the point is either way, all you have to do is reconciliations up and down. But it's going to prevent it from being as lumpy as it's been. But the problem is when you're switching the methodology, uh, year over year, it's not going to look the same. And – because one year you're talking about last year's fourth quarter, and one year you're talking really about this year's first this quarter. Sales and royalties. So, in plain English, like, what is this, is this referring to? Video game payments, ro- royalties? Are these referring to any royalties paid to regular full time wrestlers, like for appearing on a pay per view on the W Network? Um, like video games and royal- action figures. You know, it looks like it's a lot of WWE studio stuff and licensing. So, yes, it, it could be related to the licensees now. Does it affect WWE's payments to wrestlers? No. And here's why. Because most likely, WWE's payments to wrestlers only have to be done after so many days of when they get the actual statement. And it's probably in the contract that it says that. And so they'll just continue to get paid that same way. And this doesn't change how they report that. It would never change it. No, no, because that's that has nothing to do with this. This has to do with how does WWE have to report their licensing. It has nothing to do with how do they have to pay their own bills. Because paying their own bills, they can do it however they want. Whatever's in the contract, they have to honor what's in that contract. How they did, how they report to people how much money they're earning on licenses, that's different. So, so this doesn't have anything to do with what they pay wrestlers what royalty they pay wrestlers for being in a video game or using their likeness in an action figure. I don't see why it would because my understanding of that would always be that number is going to be based on a real real number that's being given to them. And that real number is going to show up at exactly the same time next year. There's no change to that. The difference is a year ago they would have just said we're not going to even write that number down in our financial statement until we have that number in hand. Now we're going to make an estimate for the full year or for the full quarter and then we're going to keep making adjustments to try to get ourselves right. And the problem is that you basically lose a quarter, right? Because now I'm going ahead. I'm saying I got a report on Q1 2018. But no, we've never reported the real number for Q4 2017. Do you think we'll just report both next quarter? So it, they, they say here, as part of our implementation, the cumulative effect of initially applying the guidance, primarily the estimated Q4 2017 licensing royalties, will be reflected as an adjustment to beginning retained earnings. I don't know exactly what that means, I, I but essentially it says it will show up as a reconciliation. Yeah. 
So it, it has to do – they'll do a reconciliation line somewhere and I bet you you'll see it in the Q1 thing to say here here's that number. So uh, from from a excitement standpoint, this is about as boring <laughs> as you can possibly get. But from a, a like-to-like number statement, it's another good example of at the end of the year, they switch stuff around. And sometimes they do it because it's better accounting pra- practices. Sometimes it's because they've been given some advice that says you really should be doing this. And sometimes it's because it it helps their vision of what they want to report on. So I think in this case, it's a better accounting practice and it's the guidance that they've been given. And they've probably been urged to do this. And so they're taking this into account and they're going to say, OK, we're going to start doing this now. So so um, a lot of changes coming to their finance stuff. But the most important one is that they're now going to go with three segments. These three segments are called media, live events and consumer products. So media is going to be the the combination of lots of different things. This will be network. This will be television. This will be home entertainment. This will be digital media. This will be the WWE studios. All of that becomes media. Then live events is live events. It is live event ticket sales and live event travel packages. And then there's a small group called advertising and sponsorship. I don't know exactly what that is. That could be for some international tours where you might have a sponsor. Maybe that's something else that's going on. I don't know exactly what that means. It might be Mattel brings the SummerSlam Heatwave yeah. tour. You know, it could yeah, be that. We discussed that. Um, we think that's what it means. Um, the last one is KFC consumer products. Consumer products. Go on. <laughs> yes, we did go on. Uh, consumer products will be licensing, venue, merchandise, WWE shop, and corporate and other. And again, this is interesting because venue merchandise moves into consumer products. Which in some side, yeah, it makes sense. It's like WWE shop where it's people buying stuff. But you could also say it's very tightly correlated to your live events. And so I do feel like you're hiding WWE studios and media and you're hiding venue merchandise and consumer products. But I also believe probably from a margin basis, there's also a base a thing where they're trying to average out some of the margins in each of these. And uh, I, I should actually sit there and do some math today. And uh, figure out kind of what the average margins would be under these revised yeah, statements. Segments. And then, by the way, venue but, uh, merch, as they currently report things, is under the pro- the consumer products division. So it doesn't yep. put it in some it category that's not already in, but you could make an argument that it belongs in live events because these are sales they are making at live events. And if you go back years and years and years – WWE had like two product groups. They had basically like a TV product group and a live events product group. Or I'll, I take that back. It might have actually been a, a TV and live events product group and then a consumer TV entertainment, group. I think I've seen. TV and entertainment. It was very confusing. And, and then things like venue merchandise, it has jumped around for years. It was with live events at one time. It was taken away from live events at one time. It, it's been everywhere. I, I have this spreadsheet I once did where I go back to like 1999 and I have like the 13 different types of revenue streams they have. And it's me trying to say under which year did they use which definition with which grouping? Because WWE.com jumps all around, uh, whether or not it's part of digital media or whether it's its own little thing. So, I mean, it, it just changes as the business has changed. And sometimes they're ahead of the change. Sometimes they're behind it. Sometimes I feel like they're trying to work people by, you know, kind of confusing them by making it impossible to compare three years ago with today. Um, here I, I get where they're going. At least it makes some sense from a strategic standpoint. I would also say more and more think about how this might be lined up with, um, people, right? So who's in charge of media? 
who's in charge of live events, who's in charge of consumer products. Michelle Wilson, they talk about being, you know, kind of having like a responsibility over all the the lines, uh, all the revenue generation lines and George being still the CFO, which he is. He's still going to be the CFO along with being the uh, uh, co-president. Um, but you just kind of wonder, is there going to be the media person? Is the media person Vince? You know, he's in charge of TV rights because he's producing the show. And then Michelle's in charge of consumer products because that's the deals. And then I don't know who's in charge of live events. Paul Triple H, maybe? I, I think when you, when you look at this news that, oh, W is going to change the way they report things, I think the cynical response and probably the response that I might have had a few years ago is that, oh, they must be doing this to hide something. And in some ways they are, right? W Studios, arguably venue merch could be categorized under live events. So I think it, it's wise to maintain a healthy suspicion towards what they're doing. But on the other hand, as a futurist, I, I can see how they would think that, you know, the, the media landscape is evolving, the media world is changing, and that's changing the way that we should explain our business. So I think that's... Absolutely. There's, there's I, I would just say, if you're an employee... Sure. If you're an employee of WWE, take heed. Because as soon as this happens, this is how they collapse divisions. Because what we're, you know what digital media includes now? The old magazine division. Now, the magazine division's yeah. dead. It got killed a couple of years ago. It got killed in uh, August of 2014 when they uh, did the Q3 cost-cutting or Q2 cost-cutting or whatever it was. Or something. I, I see a, a W magazine of some sort every now and then, but it's like, you know, it's, it's certainly not a monthly thing. It's yeah. maybe once a year. Yeah, but that is now part of digital media. And it's print media stuff. So, I mean, if you want to talk about something that seems ridiculously archaic in that definition, right, <laughs> that the digital media includes print media. But that's just a good example of when they kill a, a product line, they like to smash it together with something else. And then that way the history looks a little bit better. And the um, go forward, they don't have to have these orphan product lines. And what's interesting with that, same with the video on demand, that's part of network, same with pay-per-view is reported in as part of network, things like that. Um, but if you're working those divisions, keep in mind the way you report revenue oftentimes is then going to correlate to the way the business is built. So if you do not fit nicely into some of these things, this is where I think you're going to see conglomeration going on in different divisions in the company. Would you, would you be nervous so, if you were so, a employee right now? Uh, it depends on what division I worked in. Which division you would know, you be most If I worked in home entertainment, would be the most vulnerable? That's the one that I think is tough. And then WWE Studios. You know, right up until recently, it's been its own line, right? It's always on its own line. It's doing its own thing. And here now suddenly it's WWE Media. And it's in there with TV rights. And it's in there with network and everything else. And it makes you wonder, hmm, is this an example where they're going to be, you know, there's going to be a manager who's now ahead of, I, I think it's still Michael yeah. Lucy is the head of um, there. But is there somebody who's he's going to report to now who's the head of all well, WWE? Is, is this going to reflect organizational restructuring? I would think so. That's uh, my point is that. See, I, I understand what you say that, sometimes. <laughs> the president of WWE Studios, he might have a contract that says he gets to report to so-and-so. You know, his, it might very firmly say that he gets to report to Vince McMahon. But at a certain point here, I've calculated they've lost a cumulative $23 million over the last five years in OBDA. Okay, that's a lot of money for a business that they promised me they're turning around and going to make it work. 
And I know this is like the the drink whenever Mookie rants about WWE Studios, but no, I just true. feel like, like well, how does this? I feel like this is one. Know. Which, to me, at least, if you put it in as part of media, then at least you're trying to signal to people that it's just one component of a much larger strategy. When it sits by itself in its own line, it's really easy to pick on because I think you're kind of implying it's its own line of revenue that yeah. I can pick on. So you're also saying, I'm going to integrate this with the rest of the business. And you know what? Maybe they can turn it around. Maybe using all these digital analytics and these other teams that they're building, maybe they can actually distribute this stuff and sell this stuff or maybe license this stuff or do something with wants it. wants to watch Marine 6. Hey, we'll figure it out. So um, my other big takeaways from this, uh, North America is still driving growth. 83% of the revenue growth this year came from North America. 83%. How does that compare to previous Okay. Years? It's a lot more. <laughs> um, you know, when you look at it and if you go and become a patron and you look at my notes, I have this great little graph I did where I, I broke out North America, UK, Asia Pacific, Europe, Middle East, Africa, less UK, Latin America in total. And so you can see North America this year did about $600 million. A year ago, it did $540 million. A year before that, it did $489 million. So it's growing every year. Whereas UK, their last three years... 77.4, the year before that, $40 million. So you can, you, what do you think changed between 2014 and 2015? WWE Network? No. No. Mm. They didn't even get the network until 2016, I don't think. No, they got the, they got the network in maybe they got it. 2015. Yeah, but that's not <laughs> why it changed. Uh, why did they make so much more revenue? Oh, TV deals. TV deal, yes. The TV deal in the UK was like two, two and a half X. It was a huge giant. But it also goes to show you, since then, it's had almost no move. They haven't, they've barely moved the revenue line in the UK. In fact, it's actually been negative this year, year over year. They made less money in the United Kingdom this year with a new TV deal, mind you, than they did a year ago. Probably with escalators in that TV deal. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So that, meanwhile, Asia Pacific was a $32 million business in 2009, grew to be about a $41 million business in 2014. And these last three years have been $49 million, $55 million, $61.5 million. It is growing fast. It's growing about, a, a you know, somewhere between 7 and 10% uh, Kagers, depending on if you're looking at three years, five years, nine years, whatever you want to look at. It's growing well. And so that Asia-Pacific number I don't think that includes India. I really don't. I don't think that's where they lump in India. I think they lump in India and Europe, Middle East, Africa. I really think that's where they're putting no, it. But maybe it I'm wrong. Sense. I, I, you think you think India is being lumped in on Asia yeah. Pacific? I think I feel like the, there is the China. Like, they have. We'll see here. They have made some money in China, and they have renewed in Japan, and they have gotten. Other countries of the world that have, you know, Astro and Malaysia and Thailand that didn't pay their TV deal but gave them a big renewal. Uh, they, they've, they've signed a lot of deals in other countries too in Asia Pacific that have helped them. And they've had some successful tours there because this number is everything. This is live events. This is, this is TV rights. This is network subs in theory if they're being um, attributed to countries and so forth. For whatever it's worth, when I look at Wikipedia, they consider a- India to be included in South Asia, which is which. Okay, this is like so a- APAC. Let, what I'm I'm looking at here. Yeah, you're right. Let's let's assume that's I- India. Then that makes the most sense because that also corresponds very well with when the TV deals renewed. This would include and when, Australia uh, as well. 
Yeah. The the only reason that I'm a little hesitant on it is that you do see this huge jump in Europe, less UK, where it goes from back in 2009, it's 45, 46, 42 million. Then it kind of started slumping down 36, 36 million. 2014 was a bad year, 28 and a half million dollars. And then 2015, it jumps up 18 million dollars. Two forty-six million. Twenty sixteen is forty-four million. Twenty seventeen is forty-eight million, and so I know some of that is Germany and France and Spain, um, which are big markets yeah. for them, and then of course the Nordics. But the the jump of eighteen million dollars between twenty fourteen and twenty fifteen made me wonder if that was influenced by India. But now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know if the new India deal started until twenty sixteen actually. And, and by the way, this region breakdown is pretty standard across corporations, right? Like when I worked for Yahoo, there was an, you know, we were concerned with APAC and EMEA. And, uh, oh, yeah. I mean these, these, these ideas for where you're categorizing them. I think India always ends up being the one that's kind of on the fringe depending on what you want to do with it. Uh, or Turkey's another one where you know, you're trying to you – know, the fact it's Europe, Middle East, Africa. I mean that's trying to capture, okay uh, – uh, the what is it? O, not OMS. The name of the OSN. Yeah. You know, they're a giant thing for WWE. For 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 actually, OSN is probably what that increase is there. Yeah. You know, yeah. now that I'm saying it out loud, OSN is what's driving a lot of that mm-hmm. increase, along with you know, a little bit in Germany and France and and the network. You know, the network coming online was big for Europe, and did help mm-hmm. them some. But I think what's really important is between 2015 and 2017. Europe has grown a total of maybe one and a half million dollars. And this Europe, we're, we're talking we, Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, is with UK excluded? In- included, actually. I mean, between the last three years here, because UK has been flat for three years, Europe's been flat or down but, for but three these years. But UK numbers are bigger than, than the entire EMEA region. Yes, but I'm saying combine the two. Okay. And you're still going to see very similar numbers for 2015, 16, and 17. It's barely moving. Whereas in the U.S., we went up by $60 million a year. Latin America went from $6 million in 2014, $8 million in 2015, $11 million in 2016, $14 million in 2017. And yeah, Fox Sports Mexico and other people who have signed some deals helped that. And yes, it's a lot smaller than it used to be. This was a $20 million business in 2011, 2010. You know, $18.5, $19.5 million, and it plummeted after that. It has had an enormous growth rate in the last five years, and it's had an anemic growth rate over nine Why years. Think that is just a lack of a Latin American star. I think it's a lack of attention. I think it's the fact that the tours, you know, they got some big money a couple years there, but a lot of it's just been they haven't been hitting the hey, region. Chile's doing fine. You know, we can talk about Chile later. Yep, we are. We will. And I mean, that's the idea: is to say, hey, it grew twenty percent three-year Kager. 16% five-year Kager. It's a good growth region for them, but they need to – A, it's TV rights, a lot of it, and then B, they need to actually capitalize it by putting the right people in the marketplace. And uh, you know, if you were to, to match this up against when Sin Cara was with them, it would not be a pretty picture. That's for sure. But it matches um, up well with when Rey so Mysterio was with them and when he left. Yeah, which speaks a lot to his value. So I did a lot of other numbers kind of just talking about WWE live revenue. Just, you know, the fact is between 20, 2009 and 2014, WWE revenue was somewhere between 104 million and 111 million live events. Whatever number they ran, that's about how much they got. Some years, international contributed a lot to it. 
like in 20, 2009, it was $41 million. This year, it's going to be $33 million, just to give an idea of how much less we're making on international. But it got a little hot there for a little while. Meanwhile, what happens is 2015, 2016, 2017, you see this ratchet up. So we went from 108.5 in 2014 to 122 to 141. I mean, those are big jumps when you consider this business for years and years was essentially stale. And it would change the mix between countries, but it wasn't necessarily changing the mix in terms of growing the bottom line. Well, they didn't do that necessarily by actually growing attendances all that much. Attendance over the last 10 years here has been between 1.9 and 2.1 million people in aggregate. Sometimes it goes up a little bit. Sometimes it goes down a little bit. But in average, you're looking at North American attendances around 6,000 to 6,500 and international attendances between 7,000 and 7,500. You know, what the problem is this year, attendance fell. We went from 5,800 North America to 5,600. We went from 7,500 to 5,700. That was going from 64 international shows to 70 international shows. So in the U.S., we went from 280 North America, U.S. and Canada, 280 to 314. We lost 200 people a show. In international terms, they went from 64 to 70, and they lost 1,800 people a show. So this was a real contraction year for WWE internationally on live touring, domestically a little bit, but they basically are making up with it with higher ticket prices. That's the other message that's coming through loud and clear to me here. I guess my question would be, and I don't expect you to know the answer, is like, well, what what countries did they run in 2017 that they they did? What are the difference in, in the mix of countries between 2017 and 2016, for example? And what? Um, I, I, I do know they rent to some of the Nordics. You know that they haven't been to like they ran a show in Copenhagen. It, they haven't run a show in Copenhagen in forever. So I mean, they went to a couple of places that they've almost one never gone. Cities. So it is. It is one of my favorite cities. Often. I I do go there at least once a year. That's for sure. But I, just for an example, so give an example. They went to India. You know, there's a country they, they don't had, run very much. They had been and, to in actually they've been to in 2016, right? The January 2016 and then December 2017. Yeah. Yeah. But the India show, you know, they had to cancel one of those two shows because it wasn't yeah. selling well. They went to um, Chile and they did wonderful. They went – they did not go to Brazil, I don't think. Um, they did go to – they, of course, had a Mexico tour like they always did. Uh, this would not include – well, I shouldn't say. So uh, the next question is what does NXT fit into this? So let me just explain how NXT gets put into WWE's numbers. Uh, let me say what the NXT results were and wh- how NXT gets put in the numbers just to make this clear. Live revenue, they include NXT. So when NXT tours Australia or Europe, it goes into the live revenue international number. It does not go into the attendance number, though. And it does not go into the number of shows number, I don't believe. No, I don't think it does. The one show that I'm really concerned about is what about that Brooklyn Takeover show? Where does that get put? And I don't think that gets put in WWE's no, numbers. And if you think about it, that's a huge number for them not to include um, in terms of the gate for them because it would actually help them out a lot. And then there's four years. of those shows every but, year at this rate. They do they do about four big takeovers per year surrounding the big four pay-per-views. Yeah, so that's interesting to me. Meanwhile, they do give us some NXT numbers. They they do tell us, for instance, they ran 188 shows this year. They ran 189 last year. The total attendance number dropped for the year. 
It dropped to about 810 per show this year compared to 994 last year. Now, if you think a 20% drop is a lot, this is a story. If you think that between 800 and 900 is just kind of fluff, then it's not a story. So I, I don't know whether it's a big deal or not. They lost about a million dollars on revenue from NXT. They ran a very similar number of shows, but they made a million dollars less. I haven't looked at the proportion of Florida shows to say whether it's that higher or lower. My gut is it's very similar, mm-hmm. right? 188 versus 189, I have a hard time believing that's because they've drastically changed the mix. The other thing that did change is they did change which international territory they went to, mm-hmm. obviously, because I think it was last year they went to Australia and this year they went to the UK, if I got that right. Probably. I don't know. Maybe they didn't even do an international tour this year. I got to check my uh, my spreadsheet. Um, so I apologize that I don't know that number off the top of my head. But NXT down by almost 20% year over year, making a million dollars less. And keep in mind, NXT makes about $7 million on live events. So if you think $7 million covers everything that NXT does, including the training center, everyone's everyone's pay for those shows, plus everyone who uh, everyone's contracts, then that's great. I don't believe $7 million or $6 million that they made this year is close to enough. So what do you think? Why is it down I this year? I think in the first two years of NXT's existence, uh, NXT was, was this hot novelty in that I think a lot of wrestling fans, WWE fans, felt that they weren't completely satisfied by what the main roster product was giving them. But in NXT, they found a lot of what they were missing in the main roster product. And I think there was an excitement and a novelty to that, to all the pressure that, that was building up there that finally got released. So that, that made the NXT product interesting and fun and new. And now it's not as new. We're a few years into this now. And a lot of the stars that were uh, involved in really giving NXT the brand power that it's come to have, such as Sami Zayn. Asuka, Nakamura, Kevin Owens, sure. Sami I mean, Zayn. Are, yeah, Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, uh, Neville, Finn Balor, Samoa Joe, Shinsuke Nakamura, Asuka, Sasha Banks, Charlotte, Becky Lynch, Bailey have all gone to the main roster. So there's been a lot of talent turnover, obviously, and that's that's what development is, developmental is supposed to be there for. But they're having to... Re, you know, refill a lot of the spots with talent that wasn't even on NXT TV a couple of years ago, wasn't even familiar to this version of the wrestling audience a few years ago. I'd be curious if I did an average wrestling tenure on the veterans for NXT then and now, because you got a guy like Drew Galloway in the business for a while, but compare him to a Kevin Owens or Sammy or Samoa Joe or even a Seth Rollins, probably pretty comparable. At, well, in terms of they had more experience, experience. like uh, over uh, their entire career, even in the Indies. Yeah, yeah. Number of years, number of years that they they had to basically build their profile. Kevin Owens is what I mean. Kind of more, more years than who? Than maybe some of the top veterans now. It, it gets a little funny because you could argue how long has Bobby Fish been a star? Well, he's been a wrestler right? for a long time. He's been a wrestler for a long time. He's been a wrestler since before I got involved with wrestling. I met him right when he was on his career. Jerk but, Jackson. you know, I remember. Yeah, I remember when he did his first Noah tour and things like that. It's like, OK, he did those, but he really wasn't high profile until a few years ago when Red Dragon really yeah. blew up. Right. And so you do wonder, too, about was there more guys that had a longer tenure history name to them? 
a couple years ago versus now where, okay, Adam Cole and other people are great, but you know what? That's a much shorter timeline than yeah. a Samoa Joe or a Shinke Nakamura it's a, it's a shorter or an Asuka. To build up this brand that you finally get to broadcast on some form of WWE media, and now everybody gets to you know devour it. Um, there are people and, and who I, are kind of like that still, though. You got Cassius Ono, Chris Hero has been on, you know, the Indies yeah, forever. That's why I'm, I'm curious about the average Bobby Roode. I mean, hell, that guy's been on TNA for ten years, right? He's he's if Samoa Joe's got a long history, Bobby Roode's got a long history. So I, I might be completely wrong. The other thing is I do wonder if the impact of the takeovers has affected it in the sense that there was a lot more newness, like you said, but also there was a lot less um, – I don't know. You, you, it's not so important to go to a live event anymore because you can see so much of it on the takeover and that the takeover is such a proven commodity. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's not the right way to put it, but I just kind of feel like it's it's kind of that old argument that pay-per-views are killing the live event business, you know? Once you can see it in your house, are you going to really drive out there to see well, it I'm yourself? Sure there were people I was I remember, you know, arguing this to someone on Twitter not long ago, like there, I'm sure in the 50s there were people standing around going, this nobody's going to want to go to live events and buy tickets because wrestling's for free on TV now. Why would they ever go to a show, you know? Or you could say it's the monetization. So ticket prices are going up. They they even gave us an average ticket price. It went up by about two dollars a ticket mm-hmm. for NXT this year, up from thirty seven to thirty nine. And it maybe it's fatigue that that the fans just feel that WWE is is squeezing them at all ends because they're pricing all their tickets higher. If you look at their average revenue per per um, sale, and that they just have less. You know, what was a twenty five dollar ticket? You know, for GA is now a $30 ticket for GA. And for some people, they just say, I, I don't want to do that anymore. It's more expensive. And there's less people I know on the show. To go further on the point that I said about, I guess, like the newness of NXT in the years of, what, 2014-15 compared to the last couple of years. Um, I guess this is my feeling on the product, and this may may or may not reflect anybody else's feeling. But I, I guess I, I feel that there was sort of a... Like I said, a, a newness to it, but sort of like a rebellion. Like we weren't supposed to be able to see this sort of wrestling product from a from a WWE branded, you know, broadcast. Like, well, I think I think the fact that Nakamura came in and was accepted immediately that blew everybody's minds. That you could have a guy who does not speak English, who was who did not have any run with an American company that was meaningful. And could come in and have the entire audience be excited about it and that you could connect on day one. And like Dave would often say, was ready for television. There was no training needed. He was ready to go. And it was kind of defying the idea that why would you need to stop someone from going out? Why do they need to serve their time? Here's a manipulative rhetorical question. Like, so – what form of media got Shinsuke Nakamura over to a to that Western audience that recognized him instantly? Instagram. Instagram. No. It was not well, it was social media and gifts and short short form videos and of of a vast variety of forms of social media. I'm gonna say the Jeff Jarrett. Doesn't matter. Wrestle Kingdom Twelve. Yeah. Well, it was just that's right. It was so Jeff Jarrett and traditional media that got him over. Never mind. And it was Jim Ross putting him over on that broadcast. As what did he call him? The Freddie Mercury meets Michael Jackson meets like ass kicker or something. Yeah. <laughs> Let me give you my divisional scorecard. So I'm going to give thumbs up 
thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. And I, I tried to do this on our podcast, or on our YouTube cast, and now I, I actually put some thought behind it instead of just trying to kind of freelance it. So thumbs up, the network. You got network revenue was up $15.3 million this year, and the network includes pay-per-view. Pay-per-view was up $1.6 million this year. Pay-per-view buys went up 11% this year, and we know that because it's in the old report. And I did a whole bunch of digging where I, I, I backed out what was the pay-per-view buys in the past. And the thing I discovered is that they didn't tell us <laughs> all the numbers, but you can get the quarterly breakdowns from those 10 Qs. And then if you dig and dig and dig and dig and then apply some math, you can kind of estimate what they were. And you figure that um, 20, 2011, they did about 3.6 million buys. 2012, they did about 3.8 million buys. 2013, they did about 3.8 million buys. 2014, network launches. They do 2.3 million buys, 2.29. That's pretty good. 2015, they do 1.4 million. Uh-oh, we're dropping. But you expect it to drop, right? Because we went from a million buys in Q2 to less than 270,000 buys in Q2. 2016, I figure they did about 855,000 buys. So they dropped again year over year. And I think most people kind of assumed, okay, they're going to drop every year as pay-per-view disappears. Well, this year, pay-per-view actually went up. They did about 950,000 buys by my estimate, if that 855 number I calculated is right. And I calculated that basically by saying, okay, I know what Q1 and Q2 of 2016 were because they gave us that number. I know how many dollars they made in Q3 and Q4, and I can kind of see what the average revenue per buy has been lately, which has dropped from about 20 bucks a buy to down to like 13 or 14 because it's a lot of international buys too. Um, so I can estimate kind of Q3 and Q4. And then from that, I can estimate the total number of buys. And so that that's more or less how I got into my number. And I don't know because if, say, WrestleMania is really popular and a lot of domestic people buy it, that's going to really skew things. But all in all, I think they did about 950,000 buys this year. Now, let's put that in perspective. That's lower than any other year in WWE's 25 years, probably. Except right? last year. Except 2016, right? No, it, it, it yes, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yes, it's lower than any of those other years. So I don't want to make it sound like pay-per-view is the new panacea, is the new, you know, magic thing that they're going to save their business on. It's one and a half million dollars improvement. But there was one more pay-per-view when you and I counted and looked at it. So they, they got a benefit of that. But they, on average, that means they're getting more buys per event. And they made more money this year from it. I think they said, like, revenue went up 13%, buys went up 11%. So it was a good year for them for that standpoint. And I just thought, you know, that's a, a tiny little thing to kind of just call out and say, hey, we're still doing about a million buys on pay-per-view. And it's still contributing a lot of money for them. It will not. Not die. a lot of money. It's, it's, it's contributing some money for them. So, I mean, on the trending schedule, let me see how many dollars is it. Uh, and and, and while you're here. talking there, I, and I was berating uh, old media. I should have mentioned Access. I mean, I'm sure Nakamura was on Access being viewed by like a couple hundred thousand people a few times. So they did 14.2 million on pay-per-view compared to 12.6 the year before and 20.6 in 2015. So it was a good good improvement for them. Surprised to me. I would have just expected that that business would be flat or down. So that was uh, unusual for me. Network costs got slashed, like I say, 
about uh, $3.9 million is what they specifically mentioned in the document for how much. Because like I said, yes, they spent $12 million less, but that was a combination of non-live event programming on both TV and network. So actual network costs went down almost $4 million last year. Do, do we um, want to talk about why so, we think pay-per-view business is up? Like, why? Is it a, a lot of international? We don't, we don't know the region breakdown, do we? for that money not much though i will say it, it got pretty steady there towards the end like i was saying but between 13 and 15 dollars a buy which is much much below ww or uh, domestic rates which tells you it's coming from you know international customers um i think some of it is uh i'd be very curious about the china model whether or not that influenced any of the buy percentage where it'd be at a low dollar cost but it would still be more buys um, I would be curious. I think it's a language localization. You know, the fact that in Italy, in Germany, in France, in in Quebec, you're getting local announcers. And I think that helps a lot. Russia, China, Japan. They, they Japan. roll out every pay-per-view. Every pay-per-view, too. In the past, maybe we got that for WrestleMania, but we didn't necessarily get that for almost every major pay-per-view. This is not the story so that, that the wrestling news reader wants to hear though it it does this have anything to do with you know maybe q3 where you had great balls of fire Samoa joe and brock lesnar brock lesnar and, and Braun Strowman, roman reigns and john cena in these big pay-per-view matches do we see anything in q3 yeah. that uh, suggests yeah. a jump i i told you before that samoa joe was the only guy that jumped out to me as a possible draw and Samoa Joe was involved in some stuff, and the interest in it was supposedly higher than normal. So it's very possible that we did see some, you know, casual buyers or people getting involved that way. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I don't have the numbers. I can't. I can only speculate a little bit. I don't have the numbers by quarter either. You know, in the past, at least, I had the numbers by quarter, and I could say, okay, well, they did three hundred sixty-two thousand buys in Q three of twenty fifteen, and that was up from two hundred eighty-four to six hundred, and therefore yada yada yada. You know. But timing plays a role in some of those quarterly things, so you have to be really, you know, careful to make sure that you don't get too confused on it. But uh, as a one-year thing, they did one more pay-per-view. They got more buys per pay-per-view. So you could also argue it's just part of that consumption model, which is historically um, people just would the, – the hardcores buy, yeah. right? And so you put one more pay-per-view out there and they buy one more pay-per-view. So that helps them a little bit. Uh, TV rights we grew a eleven and a half. Information to b build that Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame case for Samoa Joe. Yes, a lot more. <laughs> TV rights grew eleven point eight percent. Twenty seventeen, they became more profitable. I I don't see how TV rights can't be a big thumbs up for them, right? Even the the deals they renewed, some of them might not have been um, optimal deals, but they were still good deals. I'll put them that way. Uh, digital media grew twenty eight percent and doubled their profitability. Huge win for them is on because the way. digital. Because digital media has been a punching bag for years and years here, and so it's time for them to kind of put up or shut up. And I do think we're at that point where if I can make some money doing a patron about wrestling economics, they can make some money doing a actual wrestling economics. So um, neutral. I got a couple of neutral. Live events. Okay, they ran more events and they achieved 5% growth. Their revenue is up year over year. I can't and – and they're getting higher ticket prices enacted. I can't give them thumbs down, but you ran a lot of extra events to get a very marginal amount of money. And what I mean by that is uh, they ran 40 more events to offset those attendance drops, and they gained about $200,000 a show. 
If you look at other years where you say, okay, let me adjust for the number of events we ran and how much more money we made, they would make a million dollars more a show. And so it's weird to me that it's basically implying that they're making a a marginally revenue adjusted number that's much lower. And some of this comes from WrestleMania. I want to be really clear about that. WrestleMania is distortive. When you run WrestleMania in a 90,000-person arena, if you run it in a 60,000-person arena, if you have to pay a giant revenue fee, if you have to do this or that, that's going to affect them. So I I can't say live events are making me excited because you have attendance drops in North American International, and that should chill you to your bone. At the same time, they're still profitable. And they made more money than they did a year ago, and they're getting higher ticket and prices. The point I have to raise is I'm, look, OEBA and, and operating income, they're the same figure in this case. Uh, they're up incrementally over the last three years, 38 million, 42 million, 42 million. I guess it's essentially flat for the last two years, though. Yeah, so you ran 40 more events to get the exact money you yeah. got a year ago. What does that tell you? That's a lot of wear and tear on yeah. people <laughs> to put on on there. And maybe if you're building stars, that's good. Maybe if you're, you know, got, uh, I just 44 mean, additional I, singles matches. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm just saying it, it seems like a lot to do. 40 more events is not a small amount. It's a non-trivial amount of non-trivial amount of events to run to get the exact same money you got a year ago. And at the same time for you to be jacking up your ticket prices and putting all the wear and tear on your the, workers. Like I just worked an intense match last night. And then one of the thoughts that crossed through my head was like, I'm sure if you did a, a full schedule or buy, we would become accustomed to it to some degree. But, like, I can't imagine having to do this, like, three, four times a week. I mean, granted, I'm sure on house shows they're able to take it a little bit easier. But still, that's got to be brutal. So I, some of this, you, you go to 205 Live Tour. Okay. What was it? What was the worth of it? Well, it only drew 1,200, 1,800 people, which is pretty lousy for a WWE main event show. It's pretty good for an NXT show, right? Because I just told you their average is 800. I think, um, I think that's a scale and we should weigh it on. I think we've discussed that. Like the 70% of the roster was what we'd call NXT guys, right? Most of those guys are often working the house show loop in Florida instead of being on a 205 live tour. And so from that standpoint, you could maybe argue, okay, I'm going to add more events, but I'm not going to necessarily be putting more tear on these guys because they're already working a a show. I'm going to put them in front of a larger venue and we're going to marginally make more money on this. So I still think they have the ability to scale up their live events without necessarily giantly increasing their roster. But I do think we're getting to a point here where you're, you're getting blood from a stone on live events unless things turn around. If someone gets hot, if someone is cool, if you can get your big stars, if Ronda Rousey is going to be at your house show, who knows? But that's a lot to ask. How many house shows will Ronda Rousey work in 2018? <laughs> <sighs> I'll give you my answer in, in binary. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea yet. We, we don't. Over we, she hasn't one. even been on live television. <laughs> <laughs> I think she will work... Um, Oh, gosh. I don't want to even put – I'm not putting words in my mouth yet. I'm refusing I'm refusing to guess. Um, licensing. Grew 6% on licensing toys, but they had basically flat growth uh, last year. Licensing is not exploding by any means. And they had a couple toys that were good, but I, I think that's one of those businesses that at the point they're at, they should be growing faster and bigger. And they, they signed that big sports licensing deal. Uh, to try to help them out with some stuff the other uh, a couple months ago, and and 
I just think they could be doing more in licensing. Again, I can't give them a thumbs down, but I, I have a hard time giving them a big thumbs up. WWE Shop, licensing I'm very neutral on. Include WWE Supercard in their various digital games. The licensing yeah. from it, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, WWE Shop, I'm really neutral on because while they've, uh, you know, they got a 6% increase on volume and a 3% on average revenue per order, uh, their profitability is not great, right? Their profitability this year, like I said earlier, their OIBDA by segment is uh, sitting at just 22%. So I guess it's up a little bit. Um, but it, it was the, the actual dollar value was was not great. And part of the reason they're up is because of um, expansion in the international territories. So the fact that Amazon UK or the India sold shop or other things are coming online – and I, I just feel like there's more they could be doing here. Um, I, I'm, I'm neutral on it. Like I say, I turn to TV rights or digital media or network where I can say here is a clear scorecard that shows some growth and profitability. And plus, hey, the promises you're laying out there require you to grow like 10% a year. So if you're not growing 10% a year, you're in trouble, bud. Mm-hmm. Um, corporate and other, uh, higher – Staff costs related to 7.5 million due to increased headcount. And this is headcount, so this would not be wrestlers. Headcount refers to employees. Corporate employees who um, five point, work in Stanford, right? Yeah. Or Stanford or wherever other video processing things happen. And they have offices around, um, the country, or around the world. And I believe they've even started making references to offshore teams. So um, assume I would assume that's more of a contract than it is actual employees. You know, it's people who are like like Nielsen does it too. They have a team in India that works on that stuff. Um, but I'll be I'll be curious about whether or not any of that is included. Five point six million of expenses related to non reoccurring legal matters. So that's Bagwell Levy. That's all the IP trolls that they fight. That's the CTE lawsuit. That's the subpoena lawsuits that they've already done. You know, there's a lot of different stuff. Other contractual obligations, no idea what that means, could mean a lot of different things. Talent-related costs of $5 million in support of talent development initiatives. PC? Are they saying yeah, the it would be. Center costs $5 million in 2017 to run? No, they're saying that they have an additional $5 million that they had to versus add this year, year in cost. Versus 2016. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. So when they talk about, you know, running all these camps around the world and flying these people in for things and signing new people, they're spending five million dollars more this year, even with talent cuts and other things that they're probably doing. Um, And then four point three million of additional management incentive compensation costs, primarily driven by three point eight million in stock compensation expenses due to an increase in the company stock price. This is brought up because they actually this year are going to try to take out. Stock compensation as an element or as a cost in what they report on because they don't want they, – they feel that it, it it's not, quote, indicative of the performance of the company and that it's making them look bad against their peers. Now, again, it's it's another game, right? It's another way of taking a cost off your line and so that you can say that you're more profitable than you really are. But I can also understand it from their standpoint, which is to say, hey, when our stock's doing great, when these people are doing great, they want to take their stock out. And why do we have to then look like a worse company if maybe our competitors have it structured in a different way? I I, I see it both sides. I imagine it's it's a game for them to try to make it look better, though, in reality. And they're just saying they had a lot of costs in that area. I think it's one thing to do that. I think it's another thing to take out the, the legal fees that – I think do reflect your your business's performance as far as minimizing liabilities. 
Yep. And and to that effect, you know, that's one area where they that's the difference between a OEBDA and adjusted OEBDA is usually things like film amortization costs or or not film amortization, but film film uh, films that don't come in on target and also uh, legal fees. Um, annual report. NXT has produced approximately 80% of our current active main roster stars. 80%. Did you know that? Yeah, I guess so. So when you look at those Ascension, when you look at Luke Gallows, you think, my God, I'm so glad that guy was in our yeah, NXT, NXT program. Uh, Baron Corbin, Carmella, The Revival, Nia Jax, Shinsuke Nakamura. I, I remember, remember NXT that great match has, that Shinsuke Nakamura had at the NXT G1 Climax. Great match. NXT has now evolved into our third brand after Raw and SmackDown has transitioned into a global touring brand, broadcasting live event specials on WWE Network throughout the year in 2017. We continued our focus on recruiting international talent, resulting in approximately 40% of our developmental talent coming from outside the U.S., including China, India, Japan, Australia, Ireland, Brazil, and Germany. Our international trials resulted in the signing of the first ever female talent from India and the Middle East which I think they're referring to two different people there, uh, Kavita Devi and the woman whose name Vince can't remember. Neither can we at the moment, sadly. <laughs> uh, NXT talent trained at our Performance Center in Florida, a state-of-the-art training facility, which was designed to cultivate our next generation of talent and has become the center of our talent development program. So that extra $5 million, I, I do think a lot of that is related to, to international recruiting costs. Um, I've had mixed feelings about this kind of push for international stars about, you know, is it really the right way of, of finding people that are going to connect? Especially, I mean, you can look at it on both sides of the coin. 83% of revenue growth last year came from North America, and you're saying that sixty only 60% of your talent is going to be recruited from the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting well, to me. the future is international, um, and to some degree, I, I believe that. I think the future of WB is going to be more... More uh, diverse variety of media that's being monetized, and more maybe more brands that are region centric or region based, and more yeah you know, more live events and more TV products that are region based. I will say just just seeing the absolute stagnation of UK over the last three years here, I'm torn on whether or not it's worth launching a WWE UK brand because that's a lot of cost to throw at something that. I don't know whether it moves the needle. Maybe the UK is an example of like W product as it is or as it has been in the last several years is already a product that that is consumable to the UK market, right? Because it's in English for one thing. Whereas maybe there's other countries that where the most popular language is not English, where there's a potential that W can still fulfill. Yeah, but then you get to the questions of, well, what are you doing there? What what is what is driving that? Are you touring there? Are you selling goods there? Like, what what's that next monetization strategy? And it's not enough just to say Jinder Mahal is our champion. He's Indian Canadian. Right. Let's go. Like, I I still think talent connects with talent. You know, Nakamura transcends nationality. It's not that he's a Japanese superstar or Oscar's Japanese. It's that they are they're interesting, and they connect. And that's where I, I draw the line sometimes is that the idea of we'll get Brazilians to get in the Brazilian market. We'll get Germans to get in the German market. I don't know if that's going to work out. I can understand the idea of saying, hey, we want to operate a territory that's going to be based out of Europe. We should get a bunch of Europeans. Hey, that makes some sense to me because that's not going to be so hard to sell and get. And you will have some local directions. 
but there, there are times that I feel like it's so easy to put people in a box and then say, that's why we got yeah. this. Well, or the idea of saying, we we recruit athletes from blank and turn them into pro wrestlers and that's going to work out well because we're good at that. I, I always bristle a little bit at that idea because it's like, I don't know if you can just turn people into pro wrestlers. Yeah. Well, there's at, at least this. Like, look at um, what they did in Montreal with Sami Zayn and, and Kevin Owens. Like, those those are guys who are from the Montreal area. And the, at least the last house show, right, that they did there did exceptionally well, uh, which I can't account for, you know, credit to anything other than that's where those two guys are from. Yeah, but I, I, I would push back and say those are pro wrestlers from Montreal. Like, those are two guys that loved pro so wrestling and went so into like, it. Those are, not, those are not Chinese kung fu stars that they hired because they're six and a half feet tall. That that's just where I push push back on is at least you can take them, use them in the U.S. market, and it's huge, and then bring them to Canada, and it's huge because they're good at speaking well, up. Well, how do I but, create I, a I don't know wrestling culture in in other countries like India or China or whatever country you want that cultivates grassroots wrestling stars like like it is the a, case in the United States and in Canada and Japan what a, what a, and so on. What a great question for the 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 Thurston analytics firm to call in to the next quarterly call with bht investors should uh, call in you you've got a privately managed fund i do i do import small portfolio boutique firm as they call it in the biz all right let me give you my thumbs Adam, down uh, number Adam one thumbs down uh home entertainment yeah uh I, I'm very negative on it. It dropped 34% in revenue. OBDA was down to one in $1.6 million. And they still released the same number of videos this year as they did last year. So I've, I've got to believe there's a drastic cut coming in that division. Um, and maybe with this reorganization, that's what we'll see. It's I already heard, I think, a while ago that home entertainment was kind of cut back pretty heavily. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those people are already working on other projects and home entertainment is a side thing. But I, I do have to believe that we're just at that place where, um, for better or for worse, they're they're moving on. And the fact that home entertainment and WWE Studios, in my mind, have never been aligned when there's some natural synergies there has always driven me batty. That's a matter of rights. They can't distribute it themselves. Yeah, but there's natural sy- synergies when it comes to they're both selling to Best Buy. They're both selling to Walmart. They're both, you know, just they're using distribution partners. They're creating content. They're working on advertising. They're working on marketing. They're working on joint venture agreements. You know, th- there's things that they're both working on. I, I just think I, I, I think my my sticking point is I've been very afraid that WWE Studios has operated out of L.A. and very detached from everything else. And it's been this this. Um, anchor on the piano for years of LA. Uh, I don't know if it's run out of LA. I think Lucy lives in uh, LA. I know they have a division out there. If you read the annual report, they always talk about what buildings they own and where they have space. So LA comes up a lot. And of course you're doing films. It makes sense. You're going to have to film out of British Columbia. So that's why they have all those subsidiaries in British Columbia every year. Uh, venue merchandise. Um, I was shocked by this. It said per capita spend was down 7% and venue costs are going up. So despite them running more events, 384 events plus 188 NXT events this year, doing 2.17 million people, which is more people than they did last year, they made $22.4 million down from 24.2. 
I know it's it's similar numbers. I'm sorry, I'm I'm looking at the wrong year. Twenty three point eight million dollars down from twenty four point two, and oh, you know what? I I typed all these numbers in backwards. I was right the first time, wasn't I? Anyways, I got it all mixed up. But the point is that they basically OBITDA is not is gone down, revenue is gone down, and there was more people at this event than ever before. So things are wrong. There's there's something screwed up here. They need to fix it. Um, it's it's disturbing to me when you have less people spending money on your merchandise. I, I pulled these numbers and deduced that the average dollars per attendee. So like, what's the average person who goes to a W Live event? This is just going to be main roster. This isn't exactly right now that I think about it, but but it's an apples <laughs> comparison that I think is meaningful regardless. Um, because we're the point is we're not including NXT attendance in here, but we are including NXT money in here. That is the problem, isn't it? It is part of the problem. I don't honestly know if it's going to skew it enough because those are pretty small audiences. I mean, your average audience of 880 compared to an average audience of 5600 or 70 or, you know, 6000. So, you know, it it's 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 only going to be slightly skewing, but my point is that there's plenty of events, right? They ran a minimum of 39 more events last year, and yet they were able to only generate about as much revenue as they did the year before. And again, I know WrestleMania just dis- disproportionately affects things, but I would think if you're doing a good job marketing this, you shouldn't be going flat or down. And so, if you're in venue merch right now, I would I would hold my head in shame. So with with that that problem aside of the, uh, we have the NXT money here, but not the NXT attendees calculated in here. Uh, nine ninety nine is the average dollar being spent on merchandise at an event. Nine ninety nine two thousand fourteen. Ten ninety ten dollars and ninety cents in two thousand fifteen. Eleven dollars and fifty one cents in two thousand sixteen, and then ten dollars and ninety seven cents. So down about fifty cents uh, in two thousand seventeen. And uh, yeah, it, it's close to that. I mean, they they specifically said per capita spend is down seven percent, and yours is about five percent. So we're in that range. So yeah, I, I think you're right in the sense that it's going. It's it's a high dollar value. It's eleven bucks a head. But I just feel like hey. There should be some big warning signs to you if you're you're making less money than you made last year and you're still putting more people in those seats and you are not able to grow that area of the business when it's a captive audience and you're supposed to be marketing products to those people. Is, is there any story we can tell about like why why is that down? Just uh, stars? I think it's the same reason attendance is down is that – is that you're pricing your marketplace in such a way that you can show some on the paper gains, but you're not actually getting to the heart of people liking your product more. What does that mean in plain English? Like stars, okay. you need more stars. Okay. You need stars. You need John Cena there. John Cena sells a lot of merchandise. John Cena not being there in person sells less merchandise. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I, I mean, if John Cena can drive the difference of hundreds of people to an arena for a house show. I think it makes a difference when John Cena is not there for many merch just as much. You should note he wasn't there for the first four and a half months or so of 2016 out with injury. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. I, I I don't think last year's number was a particularly good number. It was up from the the, the previous. I think they, yeah, but I think they should be up more. I'm I'm 
I'm their buy. I'm I'm the new head of venue merch. Maybe you'll not be you'll not be satisfied until everybody buys a twenty five dollars shirt. I will not be satisfied till it's fifteen dollars a head. Yeah. Uh, WWE Studios, you got to be negative. Uh, they took a, a a film amortization charge of five point five. I'm sorry, they took a film impairment charge of five and a half million dollars. Um, OBITDA is still negative. Their cumulative OBITDA since 2012 is negative twenty three million dollars. Yeah. Meaning, if I never did this, you could have given me twelve million dollars to walk away with the, the idea of this business five years ago, and you would have been making twice as much more money. I, I just, I mean, I it's. I'm just frustrated because years and years ago they promised us they turned around this segment. They got it figured out. They're going to invest less in this and more in this. And in the end, they overplayed their hand because of the call with Holly Berry being a, a limited success. And, you know, they, they signed all these weird deals. Oh, we're partnering with Gene Simmons on this. We're doing this a horror film. Now we're doing this. Now we're doing that. And it's, it feels just completely like a division that has no identity and doesn't take itself seriously. I mean, the only thing I've ever enjoyed is the fact that Brian Danielson uh, at one point flipped out when they removed the Country Heart uh, poster from his office on uh, one of those web exclusive really? deals. And, oh, yes. He was flipping out. It's just like, I can't believe they took it out of here. It's my favorite movie of all time. Was that on like a so, recent uh, – that happened recently? And what is Country Heart? I think that was the – Oh, Country Heart, Country Strong, something like that. I don't know. It's one of their films. I don't know. It's one of their things. I think it was when he announced the the start of the top ten rankings or something. I can't remember. Um, we can go on forever about all of this stuff, but uh, I guess my biggest question to you is, was there any big conference call highlights? We talked about the financials here, but the conference call is oftentimes – about what the analysts are trying to drive in their stories. And then at the same time, was there any stories that they didn't cover at all that we as the wrestling media did spend a lot of time covering? Uh, well, f- first, most newsworthy, uh, it was that they talked about Ronda Rousey. It seems that they were prepared to have a almost roundtable-like response to, to questions about Ronda Rousey where we saw Vince talk and George Berrios talk and Michelle Wilson talk and Paul Levesque talk and Stephanie McMahon. They all had something to say about Ronda Rousey. Uh, but uh, most interesting was that Paul Levesque said that we're finalizing the details of the deal now, which seems to mean that, there, that the detail that the deal was not actually finished. Maybe there was some sort of, uh, I don't know, tentative or preliminary deal put in place to allow her to debut at the Royal Rumble. Well, and there's also the possibility that you have a merchandising agreement and you have a services agreement. So, you know, the services agreement says I pay you four million bucks a year to, for you to be with us. The merchandising agreement says I'll pay you 20 cents on a shirt or 20 percent on a shirt. And then she comes back and says, I want 40 percent on a shirt. And you say, well, you know, we're going to hammer this out. Or you she comes and says, I own the name. Rowdy Ronda Rousey. I've already it's registered true. that. So. So they come back and they say, oh, okay, well, we want to license that from you. And they say, well, you're going to pay me for that. And then we say, well, we're going to do the shirts for you. And, you know, that sort of thing where you have an agreement. You're working for me. I'm hammering out some details about some other related factors to you doing a business agreement with me. And at the same time, you're off doing a movie. So there's not a lot of urgency because you're not appearing on my television show tomorrow. You came in and in our show of good faith, you showed up to the event I asked and that you pointed to the sign, and that's what we needed to get get the butt. So I, I don't know if I, I feel like it's a, oh, my God, the deal's going to fall oh, no. through. Because I'm sure there – I think it's much more of 
there's probably some details where her people want her to make as much money as she can. And she might be indifferent, but she's probably got a business manager and a bunch of talent agents who need to, you know, hammer out this stuff. And some of these deals are ridiculously hard because when you're a celebrity of that caliber, all sorts of other little licensing deals could be impacted, right? So you're going to redline everything and say, well, I already have a licensing deal on blank. Oh, they can use my image on blank. Oh, I already let somebody else make a T-shirt that said Rowdy Ronda Rousey. You know, all that crap. And what so, you're saying is supported by what I, I just, said. After that, he said, just to be clear, it's a multi-year deal, which does sound like there's maybe there is a service deal in place already. Yeah, so I, I just think it's it's the case that when you're dealing with a high net worth individual who's also been in this position before, you know, it could be everything to, for all we know, she's coming from an industry where pay-per-view is huge. And so she's sitting there arguing over what percent of the gate she gets on pay-per-view. You know, and then them trying to explain to them, well, are you asking for 10% of the $3 we make in China? Is that really what you're asking for? <laughs> or whatever it's going to be. You know, it, we don't know. We really don't know. But that's that's what I imagine it to be in my mind. So I'm speculating like everyone else, but at least that storyline to me does not raise the alarm bells. So Triple H wanted to say that it was it's a multi-year deal, which is important because you want TV networks to, to know and, and trust that she's going to be around beyond the the term of their current deals, which expire at various points within the next one or two years, uh, you want... But you want them past September of 2018 for almost everybody, almost every single person between September September 18 and, let's say, March 2019. They need to know that they're getting something out of the deal for them to feel like this is an incentive for them. And he, Triple H made sure to make it sound like she's going to be around. This is her number one priority. We're in the first, we're in first position on everything with her. And as she stated, she wants it to be ingrained in the fabric of WWE. I, th- I think Robert on Twitter said the fabric of WWE is a bearskin carpet or a bearskin rug. But, uh, the fabric of WWE is bright pink with the words. You can't see me on it. It's cotton, 100% cotton t-shirt. Uh, but yeah, he said this is not a journey that uh, that she's coming in to do something quick for. This this is her life now. She wants to be here. She wants to be ingrained. So every time they have a TV show that the wrestling media has been picking on, but on the analyst podcast, you would think it is the hottest show on television. So for a couple times, it was Two Hundred Five Live, where. They would tell us, oh, 205 Live is incredible. You want to believe the viewership we're doing on it. You want to believe what's happening here. And then we'd be like, are you talking about the same show that stars Tony Nese and, you know, is is doing this or that? And so this week it was Mixed That's Match right. Challenge, wasn't it? it was Mixed Match Challenge, which is doing about 2 million total views per episode, peaking at a wide variety of, of numbers. We had, well, let's see, do we have it on here somewhere? We do. About 136,000 week one, 92,000 week two, 62,000 week three, 77,000 week four. Uh, week four is actually up to 2 million, which is a little above. The others are just short of 2 million at the moment. But yeah, they talked about on this conference call about the uh, mixed match challenge quite a bit. Uh, I believe Michelle Wilson said that you're, they're getting about, do we have it here? Let's see. What is it? 12, 12 million minutes. Yeah, sure. She said, oh, well, there's 12 million minutes, or the 6 million views. So somebody else came back and said, wait a second, 12 million minutes, 6 million views. You're saying two minutes a viewer? Are you, are you, are you really 
saying that's Nobody what you're doing the, here is two minutes of viewer? That that's the math that I came to, and that seemed to be what they were getting at. So, like, so two. So, if you think about it, these mix match challenge episodes are somewhere between like twenty two and twenty four minutes apiece. So, you think about it. All right, so you know, each viewer on average is watching about two minutes. And as you pointed out before. Um, I'm sure there's people who are watching for one second, and we know about you know how autoplay works on your social media or your Facebook feed. You scroll past something and you let it play for maybe three seconds and keep on scrolling. That counts as a view. But I'm sure there's people who are watching it and, for and, uh, much longer amounts of time or watching the entire thing as well to bring that average up to two minutes. So they, they threw out one of their factoids. They're like, oh, 12 million minutes, 6 million they views. And one of the analysts said, well, aren't you saying 2 million – Two, two minutes a person and what was their response when someone said well those numbers sound a little off or a little different than you know kind of what we were expecting what was well, her response brought up that uh, someone from facebook watch uh mentioned that the average watch time for facebook watch programs is 17 minutes and mix match challenge is a facebook watch program so it, it would seem that mix match challenge uh average watch time is way lower a fraction of at least what Facebook says the average watch time is for Facebook watch programs. And what, but they also then when, when they were kind of challenged on that, Michelle just kind of backed down and said, well, Hey, those are Facebook watches numbers. They're happy with it. Well, George, you know, we don't have any um, those analytics. I'm not sure what exactly he was saying. He was using a word tab, which I'm not sure what he was referring to there, but he, but he he basically said that he sees with mixed match challenge that the average watch time for them is going up. Yeah, I just thought it was one of these hilarious things where they they love to throw out these numbers, you know, 90% audience yeah. satisfaction. And then people will be like, "Well, why do you have 400,000 people cancel every quarter?" Uh, but they'll, they'll throw out these numbers and then this time someone's like, "Wait, tell me more about that number." And their answer is, "That's a Facebook number yeah, that they gave us." Yeah, I don't want to get into the data so, that Facebook had. This is what the, what Barry said. He, he, you know, obviously they have their data and they know more about it. And I don't want to get into their data because we don't have access to their data. We have access to our data. Ding. And that's that's the one where it gets me. Where it's like, okay, you can say any number you want. You can say ninety percent satisfaction because it's your service. But when you're bragging about Facebook's numbers and then you're not willing to back it up. That's when I feel like that's a big BS meter to me is that's like, come on, like either own it or not, because like, how can you use it as a talking point if you can't defend it? Like, if you don't understand it, don't say it. And if you don't, if you if you're just basically admitting somebody else gave you that number and that you don't believe it or it doesn't make any sense or the number is painfully true. I don't know. So that's where it was kind of classic WWE to me on that part. Um, India. India is huge. Uh, Laura Martin asked a question about: Have you guys been to India in you December? Guys go to the UK and India. They they actually did it in the in Q four, but uh, they got around to having yeah. to answer any questions about. Yeah, they didn't answer it. One, I was I was infuriated when India got canceled. Yeah. yeah, so that was that was absurd to me. Um, Enzo Amore did we, not we come up at all. A lot of people might say Barrows didn't have to explain why or why not. Jinder Mahal is a draw. <laughs> no, but Enzo Mori didn't come up at all. And I, I know some people would say, well, why should he? And I would just say he caused them a lot of bad press and was something that was in the news there and was an example of a guy that they were building around having to suddenly leave 
And I do think you can ask some hard questions about, okay, what kind of vetting do you guys do? What kind of process do you guys have? How much protection do you have against this? What are your fears? What does your, your vetting process look like? Or what, what are your, what is the reporting process? Or you guys talk so much about, you know, um, the women's revolution. Uh, Where do you stand on issues of people who are accused of sexual harassment, abuse, or misconduct, but are not been proven guilty in a court of law. What if it was in a Boca Raton tanning salon? Uh, you know, none of that comes up. And and I get that you know people aren't going to bur- burn their source. These are not re- newspaper reporters. These are investment analysts. And to them, a star is a star. They don't care that Enzo Amore is gone. I think for wrestling media, I do think it's a story. I do think it's very interesting that you know a guy that basically they had retooled two hundred five live around is gone. And the fact that they have to change it, I would almost say to them, hey, you guys lost a big star there. Now you're you're changing your your approach to the show. What have you learned? What it, what difference is it making? Is it is it the right yeah, change I, for I you? I think their response, uh, and I don't know if they would, would even go this far, is that hey, they do background checks on people, which I think they do. Uh, when they sign oh, yeah. people, when they have people do enhancement talent, that's another story apparently. But uh, they do background checks on people. And... Uh, and I think their answer would be they fired Enzo Amore not because they know what happened as far as this investigation into you know sexual assault or rape goes, um, but that he wasn't upfront with them about the investigation in the first place, and that's why they fired him. In addition to, I don't know, it was a bad look. So that was just one that did not come up. Fox came up very briefly. Laura basically mentioning they're spending a lot of money on Monday Night Football. And uh, Eric Katz at one point even said, would you say your phones are ringing more more players this time, are, are ringing for more players this time around than last time? And George Barrow's response was, you're kidding me, right? But it was it was a jovial laughing thing. So I, I just found that kind of be a funny little yeah. back and forth. We got a hearty laugh from Vincent um, in the background as well. Should be noted. What about um, mergers and acquisitions? Every quarter, Mixed big story arts. is, you know. Oh no! M and A, where 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 Vince basically says, I, "Hey, I'm going to sell the Fed," oh, according yeah. to all the articles I read. He's he's ready to sell. It says to the Fed, but That's no what he refers to it as. I was I was surprised there was not there wasn't really a lot of talk of the takeover the way they have in the past where they've said you know what about you know is part of this TV rights renewal going to be that a, a equity stock transaction would go on and Vince as you're leaving for the XFL we're gonna we're gonna put other people in charge you know none of that happened which is unusual because usually there's that kind of fantasy booking going on we did get the Brandon Ross fantasy booking though didn't we oh, what did he say exactly about he um. Oh, he was on the uh, the Facebook again. He was he was basically yeah. like probing them th- to try to yeah, say the words. Wrong. We are hearing offers from Facebook to put Raw on it. Yeah, I think he, he brought uh, Mixed Match Challenge and asked them what the goals were. In um, good question, what what, are, what goals are you trying to accomplish with Mixed Match Challenge? And uh, do you ever see Raw or SmackDown maybe going on a digital platform? Which is a question he's asked before. Yeah. Yes, and it's something that he writes a lot in their analysis that I think they they, you know, on CNN Money did an article this week. I don't know if you did you read yeah, that one, the, the the one that is, and he's quoted in that, WWE is a media juggernaut, and he's quoted in it. And what is he quoted as saying? He's quoted as saying the same thing he says every time that he, they bring him on. Um, let's see here. You know, WWE uh, isn't just scripted wrestling matches; it's a media powerhouse. Uh, he goes. Um, BTIG's Ross thinks that revenue will climb even higher, especially if even more bidders enter the mix. 
And then the next thing is into uh, Facebook also has WWE on its radar. And he says that the Facebook watch could be a test run for expanding a streaming partnership similar to the NFL and Amazon. According to Ross, it would not surprise us if WWE took the risk of putting their television content on a digital platform. We see them as forward sync. Well, maybe thinking. Maybe sources at Facebook just like, that have uh, pushed him in that direction. Um, I, I, I think this is my, I have a hard time responding to that kindly. (laughs) I have a hard time responding to that as a, as a, he, he knows more than you or I do about this situation. I think he has more access to the company for sure. I am positive of that. They flew him to WrestleMania and gave him a ticket. You know, they, they try to impress him quite a lot. They, they've done a lot of schmoozing to try to make him happy. But I don't think that they have – he has any insight beyond his gut that this is where they got to go because this is what it's got to be. When are they going to fly us to WrestleMania? Uh, when we live in Silicon Valley and manage a firm. We got a lot of, a lot of influence though here. We're, we're, we're influencers. What do we call Influencers? Influencers? I don't know. They won't. They won't respond to my uh, business uh, partner summit uh, email yet. So I got a problem. They don't respond to the majority of my. Email. I don't know whether I'm going to get period, invite. So. Well, things change. Uh, twenty eighteen. They got their outlook. They want to get some, you know, better adjusted OBITDA in twenty eighteen. When you ignore the stock based compensation, they're expecting to hit at least a adjusted target of one hundred and fifteen million. Um, they basically say. If you exclude stock compensation, that's 140 million for adjusted OBITDA. Again, it gets really tough when you're playing these games about you know what am I taking in, what am I putting out. Uh, they're mentioning that they're going to spend a lot on capital expenditures because they had a building that they need to retrofit that they bought, but they didn't get started on that. Um, the tax law had some kind of implications on them to kind of take a one-time hit, but for a future gain. Situation is how I interpreted what they wrote, where they said their effective tax rate will reduce from 36% to closer to like 25 to 27%. Um, and uh, they're big on US, UK, and India TV deals. You know, they got to announce all those. Uh, the, the KPIs basically showed that Raw was flat on ratings, SmackDown was up on ratings, USA Network was down on ratings, and Top 25 was down on ratings. Depends on whether you use the coverage number, the national number. Depends on whether, you know, everything is like-to-like. But overall, it was a generally positive for WWE. Um, the, the quarterly subs number, the loss in Q4 was almost identical to the loss in Q4 last year for domestic. They lost 38,000 people this year, Q3 to Q4, and average domestic paid subs. Last year they lost forty five thousand. I mean, it, it's nearly identical. So it, it's they're projecting very low growth for the next year. What would you say? Two percent, three percent, something like that. Yeah, and, and that's important just to point out that they do not see the WWE Network as getting that two million number as something in the, in the near you mean, horizon. You mean three to four million. Tiering, yeah. And and the tiering discussion, which we hear them kind of broach every now and then, or we Never hear really rumors about, they, they well, it came up a little bit. George talked about it, about bending the price curve. Someone specifically yeah. asked them, That's are you going to do it? And he basically gave his normal response, which is, you know, some people have criticized us for not doing it yet. Some We want to make sure that there's something on the high end and the low end. So something maybe on a free tier or something on a more expensive tier. 
Uh, you and I talked for a little bit on the the YouTube thing about would there be an example of something in between ninety nine and zero dollars that's not free but something more. And we both had a hard time kind of coming up with a model where that made sense. Anything, so. anything I, I could see them doing a free option. That's fine, but it would be a free option where you have to create an account so they get your data. I can't see them doing a pricing offer that's less than nine ninety nine. But you know more than free, and I could definitely see them doing a premium tier for who knows what thirteen, fifteen, twenty dollars. Unless it was something like we'll just give you the NXT pay per view, you know, take over for two ninety nine or something like that, where you're just trying to. But those are the those you know are the piecemeal people. Why why offer those them? are the freeze? Yeah, I I can't I can't come up with it either. You're right. You're right. Because they'll um, pay nine stock had a good nine for it. Stock had a good Q4. They went from 24 bucks to 31 bucks. They continue to grow this year. They're already up to 35, even though they've had some sell-offs. So, I mean, I think you know, overall WWE is sitting pretty in a way that I can't say I can remember them. And so, it's funny that we talk about their net income being so similar to 10 years ago because their fundamentals are so much better, right? They have so much fat they can cut if they really needed to become profitable. They have hundreds of millions of dollars of cash reserves because they did the loans to get themselves there. And it's those sort of things that make them in a better position than a few years ago where they were so dependent on pay-per-view where there was a lot of nervousness that, you know, hey, if things start crashing, we're going to crash. I'm, I'm tempted to say – often tempted to say ambitious things. But like WWE is more stable as a business now even though it's far less profitable now than it was in the, in the Attitude Era, let's say. It's more stable as a business and secure as a business now than it was Absolutely. then. Then I, I, I remember at, at the time, like the talk, especially like in the Observer, was, "Whoa, WCW went out of business," uh, and this is what exactly. This is the Dave narrative. Like this is exactly what happened in roller derby, right? It was that I don't know what the whole story was. You can remind me if you know, but like you know, one of them goes out of business and then the other one fo- follows. There was a concern that that entire WCW audience went away, and, and maybe maybe WF is next, and WF's. Ratings for one metric were, were declining because they were cooling off from that hot period, and the and well, they didn't the, have nearly the, the as difference many there. Streams, but yeah, exactly revenue stream. So, what is their biggest revenue stream now? TV rights. Now, they don't get a renewal. They are they are SOL. You know, they're they are doing terrible if they can't find a TV station. They will not survive as an internet only property. It the structure that they have. However, we don't think that's going to happen. That's that's not really a, a possibility short of an enormous scandal figuring prominent stars, right? And they've already survived that's, Chris that's, Benoit, so. They survived pretty much the worst. So honestly, it would have to be like a McMahon-esque scandal. And at this point, we could see a transition and that would be able to be transitioned. You know, you could get away from the McMahon family and still be okay. We're at that place here where they've they've created an image, they've created a value pool, and they are cheaper. A station can still make money on the fact that they can improve their standing because WWE is hot. Now, if WWE loses another million viewers or two million viewers, they're not going to have a great standing. And the biggest difference is they used to make lots on ad revenue and very little from uh, the TV networks. Now they make a lot from the TV networks. If it loses another million or two million and – the other programs on TV don't lose viewership to a similar degree. Yeah, I, I guess in my world, I'm still expecting some of these live sports just to do so much better, even down the stretch that, yeah, they'll lose viewers, but they're, they'll still be strong. 
and the value of WWE is the WWE is two hundred million dollar domestic programming that you can make a profit on, but it's not four hundred million dollar domestic programming you can make a profit on. And in a few years from now, the NFL will still have a pretty darn big following, and you'll still be able to make some good money with it. Whereas if wrestling loses a lot of people, I don't know if you can justify paying it. And at a certain point, you you don't want to be like TNA where you just get a smaller and smaller deal until it's basically, hey, why don't we just do this? And uh, catering is free. Yeah. All right. um, So that was WWE's call. Uh, We rushed through that in in 20 minutes here. But um, in two hours, (laughs) I mean. I know. Uh, Latin American tournament. I was so excited about this. It was it was confirmed by Dave, where Dave posted on the board, so legit. And then William Regal that same day posted a big thing saying denying it. I wondered at first if it was maybe a uh, one of these cases where WWE wanted to roll it out as part of the network and now as the quarterly announcement, you know, get everyone hyped. And they were upset that it got out early, but nothing ever came of it in the um the call again, another example of a wrestling news story that did not intersect with the annual financial news story, but it was supposedly supposedly going to be a a tournament that would take place in Chile, and would be a uh, you know kind of like the UK tournament would have local stars from Latin America and would be some kind of a tournament that they would take down one there. Of these, these news uh, we tidbits s- reported by something called Planet Planet Planeta Planet A Wrestling. Anyway, uh, one of these off you know. Obscure wrestling media sources, and then Dayton. Well, obscure, but but it's also Spanish oh, language. Right. <laughs> so I don't want to I don't want to hate on it too much. Okay. Here. It's in Spanish. Fair I don't read enough. it. Yeah. You don't read okay. it. Uh, and and I will always point out that WWE Network was number five. It, so the top five countries of the world for WWE Network on its first year was the U.S. No surprise. U.K. No surprise. Australia. A little bit of a surprise. Canada. Yeah. No surprise. Chile. Yeah. Big surprise. Chile was bigger than at the time. Germany didn't have the network, so that's that's not a fair comparison. There were eighty thousand subscribers um, in Germany, though. Japan did not have the network, but you know other other countries of the world listed here: New Zealand, um, Mexico, Brazil, France. I think it is Ukraine. We're if I recall, flags, I, I did a piece on for those who can't see the document. Yeah, it is um, Ukraine. Yes, I looked it up. Um, so anyways, the, the point being Chile was number five. So they, they disproportionately had a lot of fans in Chile. And we've seen, you know, um, Hugo Savanovich, um, former WWE announcer, uh, he, he's been organizing tours down there. And they've been doing really well. I mean, WWE has been down there. And what are they doing? Like 1,000, 11,000 sellout shows? For the last two years, there's in October, there have been – they've done two nights – I don't know if this is a Friday and Saturday, but they've done two consecutive nights in Santiago, Chile, with 11,000 people, and then they have been reported as sellouts both both nights, both years. And and paid show, too, I believe. Yeah. Um, and, and if you remember, that was one of those shows was the show where Triple H flew down because us, cause, uh, Styles and Owens were going to be off yeah, the second show. The time the um, Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. 
Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.